I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche There's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Hello and welcome to JK Plus One. I am not coming to you from the Brooklyn Bunker. I am not your typical host, PTF. Uh, PTF, well-behaved, nothing to report there. I am uh, excited about this week, excited about the, the guest that I have for you, uh, someone that uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, to get to know and to work with. Um Someone who uh, <laughs> I, I had to confess uh, very awkwardly a, uh, a little side wager that I have that uh, essentially um, uh, when, when he wants something really bad, I want the opposite and, uh, <laughs> and trying to explain to him how and why that happened. So um, in the meantime, uh, what else is there? Any housekeeping stuff? Um, I... Just want to tell everyone, we will be on Fox Sports uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'll be on all, all the shows. Churchill and uh, Belmont, obviously, will be back. Wednesday, you'll see uh, Rushing Fall, Gotst, and, uh, and uh, Get Stormy. Get Stormy, Got Stormy. I swear I forget now, but I think it's Get. It doesn't matter. It's just about getting Stormy. And it uh, doesn't matter if you get it or you got it. Just it's Stormy. So uh, that'll be fun. Uh, what else? Uh uh, there's also uh, the Stronic Five is back on Friday. Make sure you participate in that. You know we're we're obviously big fans of that wager. It's uh, the best the best bet in uh, in horse racing at the moment. Low takeout at the dollar minimum. Obviously that does us uh, us typical players uh, some good. It does some good to to kind of help us um, combat the computer wagers i'm not a computer wager hater i'm just saying it's uh they've got a little bit of an edge and and this is something that kind of takes that edge away so make sure you check that out uh make sure you subscribe um apple music uh, apple podcast i don't know why i say apple music every week but apple podcast a little purple thing on your iphone click that and the money media you can go to all the other shows subscribe to those um what else I don't know. This isn't like a, this isn't a three hour marathon show, but so I guess I could sit here and ramble for a while, but you guys didn't tune in to listen to that. So, um, I guess without, uh, without wasting any more time, let's get to our, to our guest, a, a good friend of mine, guy that I'm fortunate enough to work with on the Fox and Naira shows, uh, Kentucky Oaks winning trainer, Tom Amos. Tom, what's going on? <laughs> Everything's good. I got a, I got a confession to make. I didn't. I didn't know if there was going to be visuals, so I wore an LSU shirt uh, in hopes that it would be. And I'm having a Miller High Life, uh, mo- one of the most underrated beers in the United States, in my opinion. <laughs> it's funny, like the uh, on on the Fox shows. If if people haven't seen it, uh, Tom often trolls me with LSU uh, gear in the back. But the funny thing about that is, is that. Um, I only didn't like LSU one game this year is when they played Texas. And I wasn't even that mad about it. It was a good game. And, you know, they, they obviously were a great football team and got after us pretty good in, in that game. So it wasn't a big deal. And funny enough, I was in Vegas um, when they played for the national championship. And I had made like, uh, right. I think I made a pretty big wager on them when the final four came out. I think I got like, maybe, maybe it was a little bit better than even money on them to win the national championship. And so I made a really big wager then I had a friend do it in Vegas, and then and then I came out there for Vegas. I mean, I was alive to LSU for like a five-figure score when I was there. And so a friend of mine 
we were walking around like Fremont street and he got me one of those big, ridiculous LSU, like turnover chain looking things. And I wore it around, <laughs> I wore it around for two days. So, uh, I mean, I'm a huge Joe Burrow fan. Um, and I'm a huge, I mean, I'm a big LSU fan outside of the, when they're playing Texas. So it, it, it doesn't hurt me too bad. Look, I know that, <laughs> you know, I'm well aware of that, but, uh, it's a lot of fun, right? we got our colleges and, 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 and in a sense, we're rivals. We play you guys again this year. We play Texas this year again, this time in Baton Rouge. You know, it really stinks about that. Obviously, we're, you know, it's, it's up in the air what's going to happen with, with the world <laughs> tomorrow, let alone uh, what's going to happen by then. But I've never I've, – I've been to a lot of cool sporting events. You know, I've been to some some Super Bowls. I've been to – you know, I feel like my racetrack – my racetracks I've been to are pretty good. I've been to NBA, Major League Baseball, Yankee Stadium, all this stuff. I've never been to Death Valley in Baton Rouge and like this was, I felt really good about breaking my maiden this year like that was my plan I was gonna go to to LSU for the first time so it's uh we'll have to see what happens but that would that would uh look it's it's the least of our worries but that would stink if I didn't get to get to make that happen this year well I already gave you the invitation so you know you're welcome we'd love to have you you know, I, I've always, I've always wondered, and you know, I'm sure this will be a, a great, interesting conversation. But I've always, you know, we went out, we went out to dinner when, when I was there for, I guess it was the Risen Star, and um, I've, you know, even from afar before we became friends, I, I real, I was always interested in your connection to the New Orleans and Louisiana sports, uh, you know, what, whatever it might be, the Pelicans, and and, and right. then you know your relationship with. Uh, with the Benson family and then with Sean Payton and Drew Brees. And how, I mean, is it all just coincidental just being a guy that grew, you know, born and raised there? Or how, how did all that stuff come about? Well, to some extent it is, uh, you know, look, Drew Brees doesn't know my name. Uh, he might recognize my face and say hello. Uh, I do know Sean Payton, uh, but it all started with Greg Benson, who's the vice president of the saints and um, his love of horse racing, um, which co-mingles with his, uh, love of football and now basketball now that the Benson's now that Mrs. Benson owns the Pelicans. So, uh, we, we've had, we have a very good relationship and he comes to the track a lot. And, uh, one of the first partnerships that I put together for them, uh, had coach Peyton in it as well as, uh, Mickey Loomis, uh, some people from out of town, Ron Jaworski for one. Uh, so, uh, it was, a, it was a who's who of NFL, uh, people and we had a good time with it. So, uh, that ended up escalating into Mrs. Benson deciding th- that, uh, she wanted to, uh, get involved in horse racing. And, um, and that's when Greg Benson came up with the idea of using three New Orleans born trainers, myself, Al Stahl and Dallas Stewart, and giving us an opportunity to buy horses for, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Benson. And it's been a huge success. I mean, right now the star of the show is Tom's the Todd for Al Stahl, but there have been many other stars. Tom's ready for Dallas. For me, Lone Sailor, as well as, uh, you know, a really good Uncle Mo uh, that I had for them. So, Mo Tom. So, you know, those two horses ran the Derby, as did uh, Tom's Ready. So, they've, they've really been on quite a roll buying just a few yearlings every year. And, of course, uh, through Greg, I also uh, got to know Jimmy Buffett a little bit. Again, I don't think Jimmy Buffett would know me by name, but he certainly would know me by face to say hi. Yeah, actually, uh, I for this show, I always, I always uh, harass the person who I'm going to have on, like friends and family, to give me some good ideas for some, for some, uh, <laughs> for some stories. But um, uh, 
uh, Haley set me up pretty good with uh, the last mango racing stage. I'm assuming that's, that's the right. one that you, that's the, and then the Jimmy Buffett shout out that, that you, yeah. uh, that you, uh, <laughs> actually missed. Yeah, I did. So, uh, we, we went to watch him in concert in Cincinnati. Uh, Jimmy had left tickets for us and allowed us to come backstage before the show. And, um, and we came to his dressing room, said hello to him, went to a little, uh, pre-party. And then we went out into the audience and, um, probably his third or fourth song, I'd gotten up to go get a beer for everybody. And, um, I was about halfway to the beer stand. If you've ever been to that outdoor arena on the riverfront in Cincinnati, it's, it's really pretty, but it's also quite big. So I was about halfway my walk and I heard over my shoulder with my head turned away from the stage. He said, I want to dedicate this next song to my trainer, Tom. I was like, Oh my God, I missed it. My phone went off immediately. And such is the case of uh, the world we live in today. Jimmy has a channel on Sirius satellite radio and they were doing the concert live. So I had friends immediately calling me. They were listening to the concert and heard me get the shout out. So uh, I missed it, but a lot of my friends got to hear it on satellite radio. I got to tell you one other Buffett story that, that really is what I think the most interesting. Um, my brother is the team doctor for the saints. And so one of the years they had the training camp up at the uh, Greenbrier, which is a very, very nice resort uh, up in West Virginia and only about a five and a half hour drive from Louisville. He called me and said, Hey, I've got to go back to New Orleans for a few days. And I uh, talked to management. If you guys want to use my room, you and Colleen can come on up. So we did. So we went up there. Uh, we got there and I bumped into Greg Bensel again, my good buddy uh, in the lobby of the Greenbrier. And he said, what are you doing for dinner tonight? And I said, Oh, we're, going to have dinner with Ashley. That's my oldest daughter. She works for the Saints. She's their videographer uh, right here in the dining room. He goes, uh, cancel that reservation. Uh, we're going to go to this private club up in the mountains the Greenbrier has called uh, the Summit for dinner. Uh, I said, okay. He said, I'll pick you up around five. So we get picked up around five o'clock. It's a group of about six or seven of us. We get up to this private club, which there's only one of the table being taken in there. And this group of six or seven included Jimmy Buffett. Um, as well as Greg, myself, my wife, my daughter, and a couple of other really interesting people. So we're sitting around the bar talking just like you and I like to do. And uh, Buffett starts telling his story of how he came to success. He knew I was a big LSU guy. And he said, you know, uh, I had my freshman year at Auburn University. And I was like, oh, really? He goes, yep. I got there and about the, it was potluck on roommates. And about the second night I was there, my roommate had a guitar and I saw it over in the corner of the room. And I said to him, when we were sitting around, can you teach me how to play that? He said, we then spent the whole night and I learned one chord on the guitar. Now Buffett was an accomplished uh, musician, but he didn't know how to play guitar as a freshman in college. And he learned starting at Auburn and look where he is now. Wow. That's unbelievable. So at least somebody learned something at Auburn. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, no, Charles Barkley is like my favorite uh, Auburn alum. He he's uh, he's nuts, man. I watched that that golf thing the other day, and he was just uh, he's hilarious. He's such a funny dude. Well, Buffett didn't last a year, so you can't consider him a worm. <laughs> but uh, that's all right. He's a huge success and a tremendous businessman. He's really smart. So you you uh, you start you started training how old were you when you started training obviously you went to college you went to lsu so i, did, yeah. I mean I'd, I'd assume that your love for racing started before then but kind of the, what's the origin story to you becoming a trainer 
So the origin is I just uh, switched schools. I've been going to a Catholic school in New Orleans, and I uh, switched to a private school called Newman. Uh, Newman, that's the Peyton Manning, the Manning Family School, Odell Beckham, a lot of really good athletes. At the time that I was there, uh, the big athletic family was the Tui family. Sean, who was a year older than me, is, uh, is the real-life story behind the movie The Blind Side. Uh, he is the one that adopted... Uh, that kid that went to Ole Miss and went on to be in the pros. And of course they made a movie out of it. And that book was written by a classmate of ours named Michael Lewis, who was also a year ahead of me, but Newman was a very small school. You know, my graduating class was 69 kids. That's boys and girls. And the year ahead of me again, same thing. You know, so Sean played basketball at Ole Miss. Uh, I think he still does some uh, color for uh, the, the Grizzlies, but um, I know he used to at least anyhow. um, So there were a lot of, important people that came out of Newman. Uh, the last thing I wanted to do was claim a horse trainer, but unfortunately they have to. But anyhow, I got to Newman and became quick friends with Al Stahl. And Al Stahl, uh, who was a trainer, uh, obviously, uh, he introduced me to horse racing, he and his family. His dad was a commissioner of racing in Louisiana. And um, you, at the time, were supposed to be 18 to be able to go to the track. We were 14 and 15 at the time. And We'd just go with his dad, and we could do whatever we want. So we had the lay of the land. It was it was at the fairgrounds. It was really nice. We enjoyed ourselves quite a bit. Uh, but I, I loved it from a handicapping standpoint. I just, to this day, handicapping is something I really enjoy doing. Trying to figure out a puzzle, you know, how a race is going to run, and watching it unfold just as you think it's going to. That's that, that's a great feeling. I, I I don't care what kind of race it is. I really like that. So I'd been with them to the track. Mm, for probably a year and, uh, you know, at different times and, and was proficient in reading the form. And like I said, I love to handicap. And, uh, finally one day Al said, Hey, come spend the night at our place. Um, we're going to go out in the morning, his father owned horses and we're going to go to the backside. And, um, that next morning I went out to the backside bright and early about five fifteen in the morning and I got to see how it all works. And I, I had no idea. I, I just thought, you know, you put them in the gate and the fast one wins, but I had no idea about the preparations and all that went into it. I fell in love with that. It, it literally was like, uh, I like to compare it to going to see a play that you've seen a number of times at your favorite play. And then finally getting the chance to go backstage and seeing all the work that went into that play. I, I wanted to be a part of all that work that went into horse racing. So, uh, the following winter, still in high school, old enough to drive, I took a job at the track during Christmas holidays, 5 a.m., seven days a week. I made it nine days. And on the 10th day, I was like, I can't do this. So uh, it's just too early for me, too many hours. And it was my vacation. I just wasn't mature enough for it. So uh, that was for Jack Vanberg. So I stopped, um, came back in college and worked an entire summer at Louisiana Downs. Uh, between my freshman and sophomore year. And when I got done with it again, I was like, man, I just don't know if this life is for me. I can't make these hours. I mean, I did for the job, but the idea of continuing to do that for the rest of my life, it wasn't very appealing to me. But again, I was young. And uh, when I got out of college, I went to the track, started working full-time, started at the bottom as a hot walker uh, for a Vanberg disciple named Frank Brothers. And, um, I, I never had any problem with the hours after that. It's something you get used to. And if you like it, you're constantly getting more and more responsibility. So you, you know, you're in a position where you can 
you know, really enjoy what you're doing other than just the monotony of cooling out horses after they work out. Uh, it becomes like a lot of jobs for people. I mean, it becomes your passion. So doctor, lawyer, whatever. I mean, you're going to put a lot of hours in no matter what you do, but your passion. So I, I, I feel blessed that I found mine. About, um, did you, are you, at what time do you usually get to the, to the point? I know a lot of times your operation sometimes could be not where you're at at all times, but usually there's, you have horses where you are. What time are you, are you an alarm guy? Or you just get up anyways, no matter what you're waking up at three, what time do you usually get out there? Yeah. So I'm, a I haven't been able to let go of being a micromanager. So I'm, I'm out there every day and I don't leave any chance. I mean, whether it's, what they're going to do training or, you know, the visuals of how this horse went or that horse went. I, I it's, it's just in my DNA. I've got to be there for it. So uh, my alarm goes off at 4 a.m. every morning, whether it's New Orleans or Louisville, which is my two primary spots, Saratoga in August. The workday starts for the barn at 5 a.m. I usually get there about 15 minutes early and uh, set up the day and, uh, and we get going. I'm done typically around 1030 and uh, come home, have some lunch. We got racing that afternoon I'm back. If we don't, I still go back, uh, for afternoon. We call it chores. That's an old fashioned word, but you know, that's, that's the word I was brought up with from the Vanberg school of training. You know, I'm back there for chores from three to five, just as I was today. And, um, those are important times. You know, the horse are at ease, they're in their stalls, uh, you know, walking that barn in the afternoon and just stopping in on each stall, whether you're, you know, feeding peppermints that afternoon or just observing the horse, in a stall, those are great times to learn things about your animals. Uh, so I carry a notepad with me and I take notes as I go. Uh, come home, have some dinner, you know, maybe watch a little TV and do it again the next day. Where, where at Churchill do you typically like to watch your horses gallop or work? Is it the same place for both? Or do you, do you drive over to the front side and, and, and go up and watch them? Or what's typically your spot yeah, when your horses are working or galloping? Always. Or is, is it, is it yeah. Okay. Yeah. The training day for me is always on the front yeah. side. Um, you know, that's the, that's the, the stretch basically you're watching of your horses. So if, if you're working horses and on a daily basis, we're working horses, I get to see how they're finishing in the work, which is the most critical part of the workout. You know, Jonathan, you and I talk a lot about workouts uh, that we see on paper, but, but, but there's always a work beneath the work, so to speak. So, you know, the other day I was up there and I watched a horse work of Al's and he happened to be right by me. And I said, man, that horse is moving really good. And he said, oh, that's the horse you like uh, that you commented about on TV back at Oakland. I said, oh, really? Who is it? He said, locally owned. I said, oh, he's, he's running uh, this weekend. And uh, I was surprised that he took so much action at the windows because he was like eight to one in the program. But he went off, I think, nine to two. He ran a very good second that day just this past week. But you can learn a lot about horses. The difficult part is knowing which horses you're looking at. So, of course, you know your own horses. But in a backside of 1,100 horses, if you're watching a random horse breeze, and it happens to be one for Brad Cox or Brett Calhoun, just to use an example, you know, it's hard to narrow down who that horse is at the end of the morning. And those things can be important, not only to handicap, but more importantly, uh, for claiming, which we do quite a bit of. So, you know, it, it takes some investigative prowess to figure it all out. Now, when you walked across the, straight, the stage, graduated from LSU, where, at what point did you circle back around um, to, to kind of lead you to where you are now? So back when I went to school, um, companies would come in 
and offer interviews to the students that wanted to work for them. So the big companies back then in marketing and business marketing were, you know, IBM, uh, Procter and Gamble. Those were big companies, and if you could get an interview with them, you, you that's quite a score. But there there were other companies that came in as well, and you had to have the the proper requirements to get in to see those companies, which meant high grade point average and some things. They, they weren't things that I possessed. My first two years of school were, you know, I got by by the skin of my teeth. But the second two years were, were good years. I, I had good grades the second two years of uh, LSU. But uh, those companies weren't interested in Tom Amos. And truth be told, I wasn't interested in them. So I never even took an interview with anyone. Um, I, I talked to my parents and told them what my plan was. And uh, my mom, uh, she said it best to me then. She goes, okay, well, then when you go to the track, that's going to be your graduate school until, you know, it's time to become a trainer. And um, it, it was quite a graduate school. I mean, I had it mapped out how I wanted to do it. I was familiar with the backside. I knew what I felt I had it to know before I became a trainer. So I, I wanted to know all aspects of the job. I started as a hot walker, became a groom. Um, so I knew all the hands-on things that hot walkers and grooms do. Um, I spent a year as a vet assistant for uh, the veterinarians that did the majority of all the big barns work uh, in Louisiana. And the significance of that was we would get probably eight to 10 calls a day of problems, usually lameness, that trainers couldn't figure out. And they'd come to us for the answers. And uh, you got exposed to a lot of things that made the learning curve a lot quicker than otherwise would have been grooming, you know, four horses and just learning from those four. So that was a great learning experience that year I spent with them. And then I became an assistant trainer after that, um, was hired away to go to New York as an assistant trainer, which I happily did. And I went on my own in 1988 with a very small stint in 1987, where I trained for about two months at Sportsman's Park. But 1988, was, uh, was when I was really starting to train. So I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your, obviously your, you know, just the, that, that first, that first win that kind of getting started, but you mentioned <laughs> something that, that reminded me of, of something that you, you talked about the other day on the, on the Fox show. I wasn't even on, but I just had it on in the background and I, and I heard it and I, I've been wanting to get your opinion because I think what happens so often in this game is that um, I think horse racing has a type of person in it and they annoy me that they know enough about the game to act like they know what they're talking about, but then they act as if they, what they believe and think is, is, is real. Like they really know it. I, I, I liken it to a guy who plays Madden and plays fantasy football. And then he's yelling at the coach for what they did on third down as if he really knows, like he really knows just because he watches ESPN every Sunday night. And I don't understand, right? What what happens when it comes to you know trainers being accused of cheating and um, what, a positive of something? I don't even know what the hell the thing does that they're being accused of being at positive. So how does it? What does it do? How does it even make any sense? And and you know, obviously, recently this situation with Baffert being accused of of having the you know having the overage and what does this mean? And is it you know they're waiting for the second sample and all that jazz? The, the, the most information that I felt like I received from someone who understands was that little five minute hit you had where you explained how unlikely it is that someone would think that that would be something they could get away with because it's so 
you know, I'll let you speak on it, but tell me a little bit about the, about, you can go whichever way you want. You talk about a little bit about lidocaine or just the whole idea of these tests and positives and, and, and your thoughts on how it all unfolds. Right. So full disclosure here, uh, I'm not a baffer detractor or supporter. Um, I don't know him uh, except to say hello to him at the track and we know our names, but I haven't spent a second with him on the track, off the track. Secondly, uh, I've been in that position. You know, I, I have been suspended once in my entire career for uh, a violation in Indiana that is no longer a violation in Indiana and was never a violation anywhere in the United States. It was for a therapeutic uh, medication called Robaxin or methocarbinol, and it was at one nanogram. That was the estimated amount. That is not a violation under the rules of the RMTC, which are natural guidelines, but it was in Indiana way back then because they had something called zero tolerance, which no longer exists anywhere, which means the presence of anything in the horse's system is a positive. And again, this is a approved, regulated therapeutic medicine. It's not a coincidence that Bill Mott had the same positive or Graham Motion had the same positive. I mean, those guys, you know, if you, if you want to talk about people whose reputations are pristine, you're talking about two of them right there. So without going a great deal on my, on my situation, I think it was just a question of uh, a medication that's not, I, I don't think the rules are correct on when to withdraw on it. So on occasion it shows up and I was unfortunately a part of that, but um, getting more to the Bob Baffert situation, specifically lidocaine. So if there's one thing I've seen since my time on the racetrack, Jonathan, which goes back to the late seventies, you know, I've been a trainer since 88. Um, it's that as time goes on, the sophistication of cheating has increased dramatically. Uh, look no further than the most recent indictments of Jason Service and uh, Jorge Navarro. I mean, that's that's sophisticated stuff, what they're doing. And um, look, the idea that somebody would do something as elementary as use lidocaine, whether it's Bob Baff or anybody else for that matter, and give it to their horses. And lidocaine is like Novocaine, like you take when you go to the dentist. You know, it numbs an area, so it kills pain completely. I mean, you basically don't know when that drill is drilling into your tooth and for a racehorse that gets it, you don't know that you, you don't feel anything underneath you. And it's used specifically to try to figure out lameness. So we use it as a block. When we have a horse that's lame, we don't see anything outwardly that's possessing the reason for that lameness. And you'll start at the foot and you'll inject lidocaine into the leg and you'll wait about five minutes till it takes effect, just like you do when you go to the dentist and you'll jog the horse out on the pavement. And if the horse Jog sound, you can now know the foot is the issue. But if he doesn't, you start working your way up the leg, uh, pastern, ankle, knee, and you keep working your way up until you get the horse to where he's sound. And then you know that's the issue. Even though you're not seeing it visually, you can't pick it up uh, through your exams, lidocaine can help with that. But lidocaine is uh, elementary to pick up in a post-race sample. So you know, I don't care if you're racing in Louisiana, California, or somewhere in between, it's not getting by. It's going to be caught immediately. It's, 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 it's so evident on, uh, on a post-race urine or blood sample for these laboratories. So I put it, I, I said, this would be like going to a bank, robbing it at gunpoint, not wearing a disguise, and dropping your driver's license by accident as you walked out the door. Now, I know... I knew I was going to get a lot of pushback on this afterwards, and I did, and that's fine. But I'm just going to tell you, this isn't a testament on behalf of Bob Baffert. 
this is a testament on behalf of the situation and uh it doesn't make sense um how dangerous would it be for rider and horse to in if if there was if there was if someone was doing this intentionally how on a scale of one to ten how dangerous would you consider that decision to be to to be blocking and uh to be blocking a horse and then asking them to run a mile in an eighth dirt race right. <laughs> on, on a scale of one to ten it's an 11 i mean you know the rider is going to communicate to the horse throughout the race and the rider is going to get communication back from the horse and if the horse is feeling not exactly right that rider is going to detect it it's it's rare that we have horses get hurt and all of a sudden just go down they do happen but it's rare. Usually there's an indication the horse starts to pull up and the rider is aware of it and does all he can to save the horse for another day. Uh, but to jeopardize a horse, to jeopardize the health of a rider as well by doing something like this, again, it, it does not pass the smell test. It's it just, there's just no way, no way. No, so I'm I'm glad we got a chance to to for you to elaborate because, like I said, I, I dude, I don't know. I mean, you know, and look, horse players. I think you. I mean, I'm sure you guys have your little trainers probably do the same thing. But horse players, we're always looking for who's who's trying to get one over on us. And so I I get a hundred text messages messages all the time. Oh, that guy, this this guy's doing that. Oh my God, do you see that? Oh, a twenty five point increase. And right, look, I I just try to. I always try to give people in most situations, the benefit of the doubt, unless I'm an expert at the subject. And if I'm not, then I want to get the opinion of people that I think are either experts or, or a lot damn closer than I am to it. Well, let me and, comment on uh, that. Let me comment on that real quick. Okay. okay. So, uh, so horse players are probably, if they're not jaded and most are, but if they're not, uh, horse players probably have a pretty good idea of, who would be some suspects to ones that are not playing by the rules based on handicapping performance every day. So, you know, the problem then becomes what's your avenue to, to express your concerns. I mean, trainers too. So we don't have an avenue to express our concerns to anyone. So I'll give you a good example from this summer and it's out there on YouTube. So you're welcome to watch it. So, uh, Shecky Shabazz, do you remember him? At, uh, at Saratoga. I, I, I do. Yeah. yeah the, I, I got a so, bunch of text messages when he won. Right. So he wins for 25,000 claim. Okay. He is bought privately. Jason Service is a new trainer. He runs him in a stake after the 25,000 claim win. And it's a good field. So we're covering that race on the show. So you and I both know that we watch a ton of replays as it pertains to the America's Day at the races. Uh, the Fox Sports show the NYRA puts on. So I'm watching his replay from the $25,000 race, and he is all out out of the gate to do what he wants to do, which is to make the lead and, and increase his position, right? So now we're in the stake, and he runs, and he breaks out of the starting gate, and he couldn't make the lead any easier, going extremely quick, and he runs the field off their feet and wins. So they come to us after the race, and they get to me, and uh, I'm like, you know, um, I don't know how to describe that race except to say that there was this movie made about a famous boxer by the name of Braddock. And when he's in the ring with this fighter, 
the fighter beats him. And then he retires for a little while and he comes back. And uh, the movie was Cinderella Man. He comes back after being away from the fights and it's during the Depression and his hunger to win is different. And he gets in the ring with that same fighter. And as he's beating him, that fighter goes to his corner and says, uh, his, his manager says, hey, what the heck's wrong? You beat this guy last time. And his, op- his, his opponent says, that ain't the same fighter I fought. You know, and I'm telling you, that wasn't the same horse I watched run for 25000 But, you know, I'm not in a position, nor should I be, or anyone else, to accuse anyone of, you know, doing something wrong if I don't know for sure. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there saying, how could they not know? How could they? Look, that's the responsibility of our regulatory agencies, state and, uh, and otherwise. And, you know, we need resources for those people before we lose the game. So, you know, I don't know exactly how to do it, but at these bigger racetracks like Churchill and also in New York, if $100 from each race was dedicated towards a regulatory agency that could, you know, investigate things that didn't look right, you know, that wouldn't affect anyone's purses at these bigger tracks and it'd be money well spent. So, I know you're saying to me, Jonathan, that as handicappers, you get 100 calls by this or that. But I promise you, if I took you and 10 of your friends and said, write down the names of 10 people, or let's just say five people, five trainers whose results are out of the ordinary, and you, you did it blindly and turned in that list, and I looked at the list from each of you, it would look remarkably the same. So I, I'm not accusing anyone of cheating, but at the same time, I do think that in a sport where betting is the most important thing, it makes the world go round and round. It makes our industry go round and round. Uh, we need to be able to try to create a level playing field. And anything we can do to help that playing field become more level and for the public to trust what's happening at the racetrack, I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, you mentioned that Shecky Shavaz, and it, it's funny because there was people, there was a lot of people probably that, that got beat. They're like, I can't take this horse. He just got claimed for 25. But then a lot of us just realized, oh, it is, it's almost like you just, it, it's, it's almost like it just became second nature. It's like, oh, the horse is going to improve because it's now a Jason service. And so it's, it, but right. It's you, a know, you just get play, used to right? it. It's a defensive it's not, Yeah, but it's not the way that's, yeah. Yeah, but it's not the way that, that we should, we should, uh, you know, we should be having to, to, to do that, you know? And, and like you said, I mean, I, I completely agree. I've had this conversation before. Um, if someone thinks someone's cheating, I like to try to dig deeper to figure that out. Cause I just don't think it's fair to just assume that that person is a cheater because they're having success. Um, I mean, it's, it's, that's it's, right. It's fair. I totally agree with that. I mean, think look, about it. You're talking to a guy. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you're talking to a guy whose win percentage is the highest in North America amongst trainers that have had like 3,000 starts, okay? So, I mean, logically, if I've got the highest win percentage of anybody, well, then maybe I'm suspect one. I don't know. But, uh, but I can assure you I, I welcome anything or anybody that feels the need to take a closer look at how we do things to come on by. And that should be how it should be everywhere, you know? I mean, when you sign right. your stall application at any racetrack, you're going to run at, which is the racetrack is giving you stalls. You don't pay stall rent or anything like that during the season. Uh, they're giving you those stalls with the anticipation you're going to run your horses. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with a clause in there that says, you know, hey, look, at any time, we're going to walk in your barn. We're going to make sure things are on the up and up. 
I got no problem with that. Right. Yeah, and and and, and uh, which which is a, a bizarre and 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 shockingly impressive stat, by the way. I, I saw that. I was I actually was doing. I don't do a whole lot of research, but I was. I heard Andy say that on the air, and I was like, well, let me make sure. But yeah, it's like over three thousand. You have the highest win percentage. Um, but I, I, you know, I think part of that is is which also I, you know, I, I've tried to explain, which was also the defense that a lot of people gave, like Navarro and Service, was that you know they play it, they're in the claiming game, and they are spotting their horses well. You know, they're they're aggressively dropping horses. They're doing this. They're doing that. Um, but I do think I actually do believe that maybe not for those guys, but I do believe that as a legitimate argument, I think that a couple of things having, and this is going to, you probably won't, wouldn't want to word it this way, but I don't mind wording it this way, but having control of your owners, I think is very important. And what I mean by that is by, they don't pick the spots. You get to pick the spots. They trust you to make the decisions that are best for the horses that you have been given to train for. I think that's why Chad wins as many races as he does is because his success has gotten him where he, his owners don't tell him what to do. Seth Klarman does not tell Chad where to run. Peter Brandt does not tell Chad where to run. You know, uh, Saul Cuman does not tell Chad where to run. Chad can have a horse that he spent $5 million on and he can leave, keep the horse in training for 365 days. And as a, as a guy, I would imagine as a trainer, you know that you're going to have an owner right now who's pissed off that you haven't ran this horse in, in a year, but Chad can get away with it. And, and so it allows him to win at a higher percentage. So I think that the ability to spot horses where they need to be helps with your percentage. I completely agree with that. Uh, you're, you're, you're dead on. Um, so being able to read a condition book and some tracks will, will trick you up with conditions. But if you're clever, those tracks are the ones you can really do some damage at. You can really succeed at. So Oakland Park is an example of a condition book that's a little different than just the generic book that we run out of, say, at Churchill Downs. So you, you, can, you, can, uh, you can find some spots that are really nice for your horse that otherwise you wouldn't have. And that's what wins races, conditions. So um, I'm trying to think where I want to go from here. I, I'm going to get to your first one, but I want to ask you this question here. Um, you pretty, I mean, you started your career as a claiming trainer. I think when I first started, you know, getting involved, I remember seeing your name, you know, as, as, as very active in claiming. And I think last year or maybe the year before that, you claimed 53 horses and you got 73 claimed from you. I have no idea. I've never seen that number before. Is that a good ratio in your, I mean, would you rather it be the other way or what are your thoughts on that 53 versus 73? Well, it's, it's, it's a trend of the industry. Everything has changed. So when I became really active claiming uh, probably 20 years ago, there were maybe, one other guy besides me, wherever I raced, that was as active as I was. So whenever I put a claim in for a horse, I typically got him. But it's changed. I mean, when you start seeing people claiming horses that never claimed before, uh, I'm just going to use a few examples. Um, and, and by no means is this a negative towards those guys. I'm just trying to explain what what's going on now. So Larry Jones has been claiming a few horses lately. Uh, Paul McGee. These aren't guys that typically claim horses, um, but they do now because for two reasons. Number one, um, the purses are so good in the claiming ranks now that it, it's 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 a good way to, you know, put a person in the in the in the business of horse racing, an owner, and get an immediate return on their investment. That's the first thing. 
But the second thing is that it's become so popular amongst the trainers. Now that same horse that I used to get 20 years ago, uh, I'll be competing with five, six other trainers for the same horse. We'll, we'll all drop claims on the same horse. So um, the, it's changed. It's changed a lot. And because it's changed, you're going to start getting more horses claimed off of you than horses you're going to claim if you're picky. And, uh, and we're picky. You know, we, we, you know, the way we do it, not only do the hor- does the horse have to show that he's got the speed figures uh, that make him look like he's a good value investment at that level, but on top of that, it has to be a horse that we've seen before in the paddock and we know is physically in good shape, you know, as good a shape as he possibly can be. So, uh, so we do a lot of homework on that. Who's the, what's your, what's your, who's, uh, who's the horse on your claiming hall of fame? Have you got one or two or just one that really stands out for the, for the horse that, uh, that, uh, you, that you claim that you're the most proud of just, just because, uh, I just love this horse. Uh, there's a horse that was running the East coast. who's running in the 30 to 50,000 range. Had been through a lot of trainers, good trainers, as a matter of fact, been running really fast speed figures, but wasn't always winning. I don't know why that was. Uh, he came down to Churchill from the East Coast. He may have 40000 claim. His name was Delani, and I claimed him. So I claimed Delani for $40,000. Uh, he won six stakes races for me sprinting. He was at one point in the top four sprinters in the country on the NTRA poll, and he won the Churchill Downs Handicap uh, on, uh, on, church, on um, Derby Weekend for me. I loved him. He was one of my favorites. Uh, so, uh, and he's, and he's leading a good life now in retirement. So, um, I guess he stands out just because uh, I had such an emotional attachment to him. And what about hot wells? Did you, you did you claim, <laughs> did you claim him? Is that the, he ran him in the Preakness, right? I did. I did. Uh, so hot wells was running at Ellis park and, uh, I can't remember if he was a maiden. I can't remember if I claimed for 12, five or 20. It was either 20,000 or 12, five. I don't remember which. Uh, and, um, and I claimed him for, um, the, the manager of the rags and sheets, uh, Jake Haddad. We actually did it together and he had a client and the client he had was named Mike Lasky. Now you might remember him by his pen name. His pen name was Mike Warren and Mike Warren was one of the first guys to send out these mass mailings. I was getting these when I was in college these mass mailings saying, call me, I've got the lock on this Monday night football game for my selection. It costs you 20 bucks. And uh, so if you called him, and I won't tell you what his secret was to making sure that he hooked you, but uh, if you called him, he'd give you his selection in the Monday night game, typically West Coast versus East Coast were his favorite ones to do. And um, if he missed, you know, how many football games are decided by a late turnover or something like that, he would take the clients that he missed with and say, oh, you know, if that turnover hadn't happened, I'm going to give you my next three selections free. And so, uh, so if he didn't get you with that first bite at the apple, he would take a shot that his next three selections would be good and then he'd hook you. But so Mike Warren had a real understanding of how all that worked. Then came the 900 numbers where he didn't have to get your credit card to bill you. You called the phone company called his 900 number and the phone company would do the billing for him and he'd take 70% and the phone company would take 30%. And that's when he came up with the idea of the Psychic Friends Network, Dion Warwick. And that was his company. And he told me at the Preakness with Hot Wells, uh, he had just built an, uh, a hotel 
in the Inner Harbor. It was gorgeous. In Baltimore, where I stayed for, uh, for the Preakness, he told me that that 900 number and the commercials he made and everything that went into it, when he paid everybody for what they did, including his spokesperson, Dion Warwick, he was making 100000 a month on just that phone number. So, and he lived in a beautiful home as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, Hot Wells was a, was, a, was a really fun one. I enjoyed doing it with Jake Haddad, who works for the Sheets. He's the one that found the horse, um, and, um, and we were able to get to do some good with him. All right, that first win, which I'm sure is always, uh, how long did it take you to get the first win, and, and uh, do you remember the horse? Of course I do. So uh, I said that I basically started in 88, but in 87, um, I got the opportunity to train a small strain of horse at Sportsman's Park, which is now defunct uh, in Chicago, in Cicero, Illinois. So I had a stable of about eight horses down there, and um, uh, I was living at, uh, gosh, what was it? The Cove Motel, right there on Cicero Avenue. So it was, uh, this was an old-fashioned type of motel. It was like L-shaped. And the short side of the L was the manager's office with a big window so he could overlook all the rooms. And uh, I checked in. Uh, Colleen and I had just got married. We weren't married more than a few days when I went up there with those horses. And I came home from work, and there was no place to park in the parking lot of the hotel. And I sat, and I kind of looked around, and I noticed that there were a lot of looking like nine-to-five blue-collar workers walking in with ladies into the rooms, and they had usually a brown bag of beer with them. And I was like, what have I done? So uh, I went and saw the manager. I said, man, I got no place to park. You know, he goes, oh, well, we'll you know, we'll try to figure something out. So I called a buddy of mine that lived there in the past. I said, hey, you got me living in a, in a brothel, you know? And he's like, no, it's not. I'm like, I'm telling you, yeah, it is. So he, I said, I don't have a place to park when I come home at 530. He goes, go give the manager a winner and he'll take care of you. So it was my seventh start. I hadn't talked to the manager yet. I didn't know if the horse was going to win or lose, but it had been snowing every day up there in Chicago. And the walk from my car to the motel room was no fun. So I went in the manager's office. I said, hey, I'm running a horse tomorrow uh, in the third race. I really like her. And she won. Her name was Prize Dream. Uh, I'll never forget her. My first win in my seventh or eighth start. Oh, God, what a glorious moment that was. Maiden 7,500 claim. Maiden 7,500 claim. But man, she was my stable star. Uh, came home from work that night, parking lot full as can be again, except for one spot right in front of my room. Had a big orange cone out in front of it, snowing again, minus five degrees. And here comes that manager running out of his office, moves that cone for me, and I pull right in and walk into my room. Never had a Parkinson's problem again after that. <laughs> it's nothing like a good old tip. Yeah, right. What, uh, what, uh, so what got you from sportsmen's to, to, you know, winning the Kentucky Oaks? What, what was the, the, the kind of changing moment for you? Like what really turned it all right, around? Right. So, um, uh, I, I was at sportsman's, uh, through probably March and, um, I got a call from New York. Uh, one of the big trainers there at the time in the, in the late eighties was John Paracella and John Warren, an assistant and, uh, someone who recommended me for the job. And um, it was a chance to go to New York. I was reading about John every week in the Blood Horse. The Blood Horse was a weekly magazine. He was winning everything. And I, I thought, wow, this is my big opportunity. And uh, so I gave up my horses and I went to New York. We packed the car up and we moved to Elmont. I spent a year with John. 
And then I came to Louisiana, and, which was my home state, of course, and I uh, decided I was going to train. I probably had about 30 people along the way uh, tell me, hey, when you go out on your own, give me a call. I'll help you out. And I wrote down everybody's name that, that told me that. And so I'm ready to go on my own. I made those calls to all those people, and one came through. And his name was Mike Stevens. So I had known Mike for a while. He's from Baton Rouge. And his nickname was Crete. That's short for concrete because he was in the concrete business. But it was also in reference to his personality. He was a very stubborn guy. So I knew how volatile he was because he changed trainers a lot. But he was giving me a shot, and I was willing to, to do it. So I came to Louisiana Downs with three of his horses. And I had another horse that I had bought for $15,000. It took six of us. That's, that's how good my, my client list was. It took six of us to buy this horse for 15,000, uh, including Al Stahl. He was involved as an owner back then, uh, to buy a horse named Fire the Shot. The only thing he had done is won a maiden $15,000 race. But we liked him and we thought we could help him a great deal from the barn he was coming from. And we got him to Louisiana Downs and we ran him. He had won for us, it was a claiming race. And now it was the next step, and there was a big stakes race going a mile and an eighth. And a mile and eighth is a lot of distance for Louisiana horses. So this really good horse I'd gotten from Mike Stevens, his name was He's a Bear, was in the race, and he was the favorite. And here was this horse, fire the shot, considered an extreme long shot in the race. They both ran against one another. So uh, this is before simulcast. This is before cell phones. And tracks would lock up the phones before the races began. So if you weren't at the racetrack, you didn't know the results. So I ran that race that day and fire the shot, won that stake. As a three-year-old beating older horses going a mile and eighth in June of 1988. That was my big break. But I didn't know it was my big break at first because after he won, we all were celebrating. When the race was over, I went back to the barn. The phones had been unlocked. So they were operational, and I got there, and I had a, a kid working for me. I was in high school working in the summer, and I said to him, I said, hey, did uh, Mike Stevens happen to call? Oh, yeah, Tom, he called about 10 minutes ago. I said, how was his attitude? Oh, he's great. He said, uh, how did we do in the stake? And I told him we won. And I said, no, 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 his horse didn't win. The other horse won. He goes, oh, he thinks his horse won. I said, uh, what else did he say? He said, well, he said he'd call back in about 20 minutes. So I walked into the office in the barn. I sat down. And I looked at that phone like it was a ticking time bomb. <laughs> and when it rang, I answered the phone. And Mike was all excited. He said, hey, Tom, we win it, huh? I said, no, no, Mike. We ran fifth. And Mike sat there for a second. He said, where'd that other piece of shit of yours run? <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, he won the race, Mike. And uh, he, Mike's only comment was, huh. So as I like to say when I tell the story, in Louisiana, huh, means you're fired. So the next day, I lost all three of those horses. I was down to fire the shot. And I had a crazy owner who, whose mare had twins. And the reason that in today's world, they abort one of the twins when they ultrasound and see that the mare has two is because they're too small. But he thought that was great success, that he was going to have two babies instead of one. So I had two 700-pound horses that looked exactly alike with the same exact full papers that I took to the track late in the morning because I was so embarrassed by them and fired the shot. That's what I was left with the next day. And I came home and I told my wife, I said, I'm done. I mean, 
I can't make a living like this. And that same day, John Franks, who was the, one of the biggest owners in the nation, and certainly the biggest owner in Louisiana, called me and asked if I would take a few horses. He had seen the stakes race the day before. So he gave me four or five, and I won with every single one of those when they ran for the first time. After that, he flooded my barn with horses, and I've never had to look back. So, you know, look, as I tell that story, there, there is a caveat to it. The caveat's this. I got some very lucky breaks. I'm around the track every day around trainers that didn't get the breaks I got. They're every bit as good at what they do as the next guy, you know. So a lot of success, whether it's training or anything else, you know, it's it's God giving you these breaks. I got some really good breaks. So you, you don't have two uh, you don't have two seven hundred pound twins, but you do have two uh, you know fifteen hundred twelve hundred pound gorillas. And these three-year-old sprinters of years, long, long weekend and no parole. Um, it's I'm sure it's going to be a task trying to keep them separated as long as possible. But uh, how fun is it to have those two horses? I'm loving it. I mean, they 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 have really been the stars of the barn this winter. Um, you know, both at Oaklawn and at Fairgrounds. So uh, it's been really enjoyable with both those horses and. You know, they, they, they are both sprinters and they both possess the same style of running, but, but, but they strike me differently in their personalities in that I think no parole can be a very, very good middle distance horse as well as a sprinter. And long weekend is, is, is he's a six furlong, you know, bull of a horse that, that, that wants to get in a fight with you when he's in a race. And we saw that when he beat Echo Town uh, at Oakland, that was a great race. Those are the hardest to lose and the funnest to win when you're in a dog fight all the way down the stretch and you come out on top. Yeah. And echo town, you know, it, it, it kind of proved that long on week, you know, long, excuse me, long on weekend, long weekend wasn't, wasn't beating up on, on, on someone who couldn't handle it. Echo town came back and showed he was a fighter. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that just, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And not even just that. Not, I mean, I think that, you know, there's that, obviously there's that key race thing, right. Where, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, franking the form by echo town coming back and winning. But I think even more so how Echo Town came back and won. You know, just like in a dogfight again, it shows how tough Long Weekend is. Yeah, you know, and, and to add to that, so Echo Town uh, decided to make the pace in that race early on, and he took on some challenges. And I thought, well, that's going to be his undoing because he went really fast early, and uh, and he still was able to fight off the late challengers. That's a sign of a good horse. Now, I think I saw the article. You're going to keep, you're going to go one with California, one New York. Uh, long weekend's going to go to California and no parole is going to go in the Woody Stevens in New York. They both run the same day, June 20th. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm I'm, I'm you going to, which are you going to go or are you, or do you have to be, what's the rules now with like New York yeah. and stuff? Are you going to have to just kind of stay, stay put? Yeah. I don't, I don't have a lot of options there. So, uh, so I, I might be watching on TV, you know, so, uh, there's all kinds of rules going around, and look, they're, they're, the rules are frustrating, but I understand why they're in place. So it's just, you know what? You, you do the best you can. I know the racetracks are doing the same. Now, I know that, uh, you know, I was curious, how, how did you meet Maggie Moss? Obviously, you guys have, have had a lot of success together and, and, and uh, you know, claiming horses and good horses. How did, how did that relationship come about? So we met over the phone. Um, at the time, she had a couple of other trainers. And look, Maggie's not a one-trainer gal. 
you know, she always has uh, more than one trainer uh, in the past, but we met over the phone in a conversation and, uh, and, and we decided to try a few horses and see how it went. Um, I tell owners, prospective owners that come to my barn all the time. I was like, look, you know, you want to have fun in the business and in your, you know, journey to own horses and maybe learn more about the game, you're going to find that not every trainer fits your style, you know? And so I've certainly had owners that I didn't really fit their idea of what they wanted their trainer to be. In the case of Maggie, she had an idea of what her trainer, what she wanted her trainer to be. And I think I just fit the mold pretty well. Now, of of all the races that you know you've won, one of the ones I was I was surprised that you hadn't yet, and and I'm sure that it, it's it's one that's probably I'm, I'm guessing it, it ranks pretty high on your list. But Louisiana Derby is that one that's is that uh, a race that uh, would surprise people how high it is on your list? Obviously, it's probably not above the Kentucky Derby, but I, I would imagine any other word with Derby in it, uh, race with Derby in it, I would imagine Louisiana Derby is probably up there. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I want that race. Um, I've been favoring it more than once. Uh, I've come close more than once. I mean, uh, Lone Sailor got beat a neck in a race where he actually made the lead inside the eighth pole. Uh, you know, um, so yeah, I've won it. I was favored. I'm going way back in time. I was favored uh, with a horse named Fly Cry that had won every prep leading into it, which the three preps of LeCompte uh, and the Risen Star. And then, of course, the derby itself. So I was favored, uh, in that particular race. And, um, and I, I didn't win. I ran fourth. Uh, it turned out that fly cry was probably a better middle distance horse than he was going that far. And I got beat by a horse named Kendali and Kendali was a Lou Roussel trained horse that Ryan Lamarck was involved with. Well, they had had great success with risen star. And I don't know how well you remember that time of year but ronnie is a accomplished singer so he would have these songs written about risen star and he'd sing them on national tv on abc and i remember unsaddling after the race really dejected and i heard ronnie over my ear singing a song about kendali and that just about that just about put me to go to bed early and just put the sheets over my head i was so disappointed but yeah i want that one i definitely want that one Flycrow, was that your, was he, was he your, uh, like your, kind of your first good three-year-old? I think so. Yeah. I think as a matter of fact, for sure. He was owned by a couple of local guys, uh, in New Orleans. And, uh, I'll never forget when he ran in the, the prep to the Derby, the Risen Star, this is at the old fairgrounds, the maitre d' of the clubhouse came up to me and said, uh, Mr. Amos, uh, your owners have already ordered two cases of champagne for the race for after the race. And I was like, oh, my God, what a kiss of death, you know, to, to already feel like you're going to win. And he, he held up to his end of the bargain. He did win. But I, mean, <laughs> I was like, that's, that's bold. Are you, uh, are you very superstitious? Extremely. Extremely <laughs> superstitious. I, 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 I would get on a plane, and if they handed me my ticket and I was row 13, I'd say, you got to get me out of this row. So – uh, I, I, I thought 13 was the most unlucky number in the world. I mean, on the 13th of the month, I'm, I'm like doubly cautious, but, uh, ironically, um, at the draw Monday before last year's Oaks, they pulled the pills and, uh, my horse Serengeti Empress drew repose 13. I couldn't believe it. I was like, Oh Lord, you know, she's coming off a race, the fairgrounds Oaks where she was eased cause she bled. Now I'm in the Kentucky Oaks and I draw post 13. I'm like, goodness gracious. 
You know, it's I, I no longer look. I I welcome number thirteen with open arms now. It's not a problem for me. Everything else, yeah, yeah I still got a problem with that. <laughs> I'm the same way. I I uh, I uh, fifty dollar bills. I won't touch them. Neither will um, I. Well, I mean, like my my like someone gave me one in a in a like a, a Christmas card, and I like took the Christmas card and like shook like sh- you know shook it out and like asked someone to like give me change for it. Um, I mean, I shut down a whole bank situation one time. I had a check that I was cashing, and they they tried to pay me in fifties, but they had already kind of endorsed the check. And I was like, "Look, I I can't, I can't do it." And then I had to get my money back. And then my son was born on the thirteenth, so you know that obviously thirteen, I, I could care less. An airplane, you know, floor of a hotel, I'm good now. At that point, it's 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 got it's a lucky one for me now. Yeah, fifties are bad yeah. luck. There's no question, fifties are bad luck. Although my wife will dispute that because I give her every one I get. If I happen to run across a fifty, I'm like, oh, how did this happen? I say, here, Colleen, take it. So she thinks they're good luck. <laughs> of course. Yeah, uh, your daughter Ashley said that one guy. One time, you guys had to turn around. It was the black cat. You guys were on your way somewhere, and, and uh, you literally had to turn around. Yep, that's that's also true. We were driving down the road, and I had a big day ahead of me the next day. A lot of important things in horse racing were going to happen. And that black cat ran out in front of the car, and I put the brakes on. Fortunately, it wasn't a busy road. I was able to back up and find a new direction. Fact happened. So we have a lot of horse players that that, that listen to this, and only lots of other people too. Surprisingly, I, I've I've seen some really cool notes from people that I, I'm surprised they listen. But um, one uh, when my first time I ever met you was through a, a, a horse player, a, fr- a friend of, of mine and a friend of a lot of people that, that are probably listening to, to this episode. And that's Brent Sumja. Um, mm-hmm. I met Brent the first time when I was uh, like my first year, I kind of was on the tour and he had won the tour before that. And we went to dinner together and he kind of like made sure he sat next to me at this dinner we went to. And, and he, it, I just remember that, that moment of feeling like I can't, you know, I w- it was almost like he was a celebrity to me because he had won the tour already and I was trying to do it. And he was so gracious and just like really like just telling me all these things and super helpful and, and uh, such a great guy. And then that was the first time I met you was through him. I, I, I know that you guys uh, had worked together in the past. So um, Sumja, he's an interesting man, isn't he? He is. So, uh, so Brent grew up in Beverly Hills. He was a privileged kid, no question about it. Went to UCLA, played water polo for them. Uh, he finished school and decided to go to Louisiana Tech and get in their horse racing program. So the next thing you know, he goes from Beverly Hills to Ruston, Louisiana. And I met him because the director of the program, I was training horses then, and uh, he asked me to come speak to his seniors. So I walk in the classroom to speak to him, and Brent is one of them, and Keith DeZormo is another that's in the class. Uh, I spoke to him, and when I got done, Brent came up to me and asked me for a job. And that was the first time I met him. And I said, look, I really don't have anything other than, you know, a hot walking position. And he said, I'll take it. So a hot walker is someone that just cools the horses out after they go to the track. It's a very low position on the tree of getting to be a trainer. Brent was so smart that within two months Uh, I made him my traveling assistant. So he was traveling with all my good horses throughout the United States, taking care of them for these big races. And he left me and he went to California, ended up training on his own. And for years, he was always second behind Hollendorfer in Northern California in training. 
And one day he just got sick of it, you know, and just said, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And he walked away from it. Uh, now he's a handicapper by profession. He's very, very good. We talk two or three times a week. Um, always enjoy our conversations, and uh, he, I consider him a very close friend. Now, obviously, you know, people that watch the show and, and, and uh, the Fox show are obviously aware of your acumen as a, as a handicapper and your opinions. And, um, and I know that it can get a little bit tricky with, you know, kind of mixing the professions, but do you bet much? How much do you bet, you know, any good long, any, any good, good betting stories? So I'm, I wouldn't call myself a better. Okay. But if I'm going to put in the work on one of those shows and there's a pick five carryover, I'll put up a ticket, you know, and I'll, I'll play it, but it won't be anything of any consequence. And I, I don't really bet on horses per se, but I will tell you my greatest betting story, which occurred way back in 2004. So it's springtime in New Orleans, and uh, the weather's starting to get good, and i just become interested in the game of golf, which I've since lost interest in. But anybody will tell you that if you get the golf bug, you want to do it as much as you can. The problem is, if you're a horse trainer, you don't have much time to do it. So on this particular day, I was getting a chance to play a course in New Orleans that was really nice. And I got a call around 10 o'clock in the morning, and uh, uh, my friend said, hey, there is a $2 million carryover at Santa Anita today, and they think they're going to get another $4 million into the pool. We've got to play this pick six. Will you study it on your sheets? So I'm a big ragazin and sheet guy. And so I said, I don't even have the sheets for Santa Anita, but I was able to, to get them sent to me uh, that morning through the computer, and uh, I started looking them over. And I put down what I thought was a, a proper ticket because I'm so unsophisticated in these big tickets with a pick six. When I counted it all up, it was like $6,000. I was called him back and said, this thing's impossible. He goes, just narrow it down. So uh, I was able to narrow it down to make it about an $1,800 ticket. And I just come across some found money. Uh, a friend of mine owed me some money and paid me back. So I was like, you know what the heck, I'll play it. So I called my buddy back. And I told him, okay, I'm in. Here's the ticket. And I went through it with him. We got to the last race. And he said, I want to add a horse in this race. I had two horses in the last race. And uh, I said, sure. Which one do you want to add? He said, I want to add this horse, Houston Astro, in the last race. Uh, and I remember handicapping that last leg and saying, the two horses I like were both front-end horses. I could see them knocking each other out of the race by both competing for the lead. And then what happens? So I said, fine. Uh, we added that one. So the ticket jumped, became like a $2,400 ticket. And, uh, and we bet it. So I left to go play golf. I get to the golf course, um, putting, just waiting to tee off. And two guys I've never seen before, and I know all the horse players in New Orleans, are sitting there talking about the Santa Anita pick six. So that's how big it was. Everybody was aware of it. This was a huge carryover. So I go and I play my round of golf. I get done probably five o'clock New Orleans time, which is three o'clock California time. I had forgotten about the ticket and I'm driving back from across the river. The golf course is across the river, in New Orleans, it's about a 30 minute drive because you hit traffic and it hits me when I'm on the bridge. Oh man, we got that pick six. It's already started. Let me call my buddy. So I call him up and I said, uh, Hey, how are we doing in the pick six? And he says, Tom, I almost didn't answer the phone because it's bad luck, but we're three for three and none of them are favorites. So I was like, wow. I said, what are they paid so far? Now, I'm going off memory when I tell you this, so it's not going to be the exact amounts, but we had a $20 winner, $9 winner, an $18 winner. I was like, wow. I said, how long until the next leg? 
He said, about five minutes. I said, let me call you again. So I called him after the fourth leg, and we hit that one. So I was like, geez. I said, listen, I'm going to go to the gym. They've got TVs there, and they got that channel. This is before TVG, I think. This is 2004. But we had a channel that showed a lot of simulcasts. I said, they got a channel. I'll watch it from the gym. So I get to the gym, and the fifth leg has gone off, and I didn't make it in time. So I call him, and I ask him again, well, how are we doing the pick six? He said, we hit the fifth leg. We're five for five. So we're down to the last leg. We've got the two horses I picked in this big long shot that he threw in there. And uh, I tell him, I said, listen, I'm going to get on the treadmill. I'm going to do some jogging. Call me when the last leg goes off. I don't want to listen to it. So I'm on the treadmill jogging. I can't get the race on my TV on the treadmill. So that whole time on the treadmill, I'm daydreaming about this pick six and how much money I might come into if it hits, you know, and I'm daydreaming so much. I actually missed the race. He calls. I don't, I don't, I didn't see the call. And so I immediately stopped the treadmill. I get off. I go sit down in a chair. I, I know exactly where that chair is in that, uh, in that workout facility. I sit down in the chair and I call him and I said, Hey, how we doing the last leg? And he goes, we won it. I was like, we won the pick six. And he's like, absolutely, Tom, we won it. And I was like, which horse won the last leg? He said, the one I gave you. I was like, that's the only, that was the only contribution he made to the pick six. And I was like, what did that horse pay? He's like, I think $70. So I was like, my God, what's this pick six paying? He goes, they haven't put it up yet. I was like, look, did you check this ticket? Do you know everything? He goes, Tom, come on. Yes, I've checked the ticket. So I sat in that chair. I'm starting to sweat profusely into the chair. It was a leather chair. And I'm waiting for him to tell me what the pick six is going to pay. And all of a sudden, he lets out a noise. It didn't even sound human to me when I heard it. And I'm like, what? $1.56 million. So I told him. I was like, listen, I don't want anybody thinking I'm a gambler. You know, that's not what I do. I'm a trainer. So you cannot tell a soul that I'm involved in this ticket. So... He says, deal. So I didn't even tell my family till about, I was living in New Orleans by myself. My wife and kids are up in Louisville. I didn't tell them until I got up here. I didn't want anybody to know. And uh, to this day, I've only told a few close friends in my family that story. This is the first time I've ever told that story publicly. But here's the kicker. So about five months later, it's my birthday, and he sends me a composite, a VH1 tape of all the races, because I never saw a single one of them. And... Uh, one morning in the barn, we had a player there because we watched a lot of race replays for claims uh, on, on tape. And I put it in. I started watching it. Well, we get to the sixth leg. Now, I know who won the race. This horse, Houston Astro, won it. So I'm watching the sixth leg, and sure enough, the two horses I like go out to the front and battle each other, and they fade. And here comes a horse on the outside. It's not Houston Astro. And I'm like, wow, this guy, he must have called the – Trevor Demner must have called the wrong horse. And I'm looking closer and closer, and that horse gets to about the 16th pole. And all of a sudden, the rider pulls him up. He was going to win the race, this other horse. And he, and he did something down the lane. He went wrong. And then here comes Houston Astro. Wins the race. I was like, my God. I mean, what a way to win a pick six, right? And so oh six months later, I'm at the Derby, and I'm doing the show for TVG called The Works. So I'm sitting around dinner. We'd done the last show. We were all celebrating. It's Tony Alivato, who was our boss at the time. It's myself. It's Todd Shrupp. Uh, it's uh, Frank Lyons and a couple of others. I think Simon Bray was there as well. 
And when the check comes, Tony says, we're going to go around the table and everybody's going to tell their worst beat story. And whoever has the worst beat story doesn't have to contribute to dinner. So the stories were great. I mean, they were really, really good. But they get to Frank Lyons and Frank Lyons says, do you remember that pick six at Santa Anita last March? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, we couldn't forget that. He goes, well, how about I am five for five in that pick six? And on the last leg, my horse makes the lead going down the stretch. And I got two friends, and they're going crazy behind me, slap me in the back. I said, you're going to win the pick six. You're going to win the pick six. And right about the time that guy slapped me on the back to tell me that, the horse went wrong, and I lost the race. And I'm sitting there in dead silence. Because, again, I don't want anybody to know, you know that I made – half of 1.5 million before taxes in a race. You know, that's not what I do. So uh, it took me a couple of years to pull Frank aside and say, hey, I just want to tell you something. And, uh, uh, but I have never, ever told that story publicly until now, 16 years later. That was March the 3rd, 2004. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the horse that got it for me. And uh, you know what? I paid for my kid's education through college. I paid off my house. I made some generous donations, including to my church, and uh, the rest I put away for my retirement. Unbelievable! I, I had no, I had no idea that ever happened. I've never, I've never heard that story either. Neither has anybody else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow! So did you? Um, I mean, I understand that, right? I mean, like you know, we talk about people's perception, people not, you know, not understanding. I mean, in, the great part about it was in Santa Anita. I mean, you could probably count how many races you won in Santa Anita on your hands, right? Uh, I don't need any hands. I haven't won anything in Santa Anita before. <laughs> See, there it is. <laughs> and, and, and the best part about it is like, uh, you know, it's it's the the, the Houston Astro. It wasn't even right. your it wasn't even your pick. And by the way, you know what the pick five paid? Fifteen hundred. So I know that because we had it a bunch of times. But if that guy doesn't, if my partner doesn't give me Houston Astro, then all that work ends up being a loss of about twelve hundred bucks. It's <laughs> oh, unbelievable. You know, you, you mentioned the sheets, and um, I have, you know, look, I, I welcome in lots of different stuff, and uh, you know, I use Timeform US. Um, I like the buyer based speed figure. I like, you know, workout reports, uh, stats. Raceland has some really cool stuff you can do. I don't like their speed figure, but they got some cool stuff that you can do with, uh, with stats and, and, and all of that good stuff. Um, I just never really got into, uh, the sheets or thoroughgraphs. And, and, and part of it was, is like, once I understood what it was, uh, by the time I understood what it was, I was kind of already, I was kind of over it to a certain extent. And, and, and let me tell you why I don't like it. And then you can tell me why you do. Cause I've, I haven't had a, a ton of conversations about it for me. I don't like the credit they give for ground loss because I feel like I get that visually when I watch the replay anyway. So if someone gets a 90 buyer and they lost a lot of ground, then I can, I can, kind of upgrade that 90. The other problem is, is that especially in this day and age with the rail not being great, that's actually a good trip and not a trip that I want upgraded. Am I wrong about like, where, what's your, what's your, uh, your, uh, your angle on those? So to address that specific point, certainly uh, in years past, that's been true at Belmont. I mean, the move is to come around and be about five or six wide turning for home. And, you know, you're right. They do give credit for that, but Here's the interesting thing about the rags and sheets. So I'll watch a race visually, particularly when it comes to my horses and how I think they ran. 
and Ragsons will have a completely different opinion on occasion. And, and I'll, I'll be like, come on, no way. I'm right, they're wrong. Look, if that happens 10 times, 10 times out of 10, they're right and I'm wrong. So, you know, that's, that's after 30 years of watching races. So, you know, that's, I, I, think, I, think, I think they're very, very good speed figures. And they take a lot of things into account, things that you wouldn't even begin to consider. So I'm going to give you a quick pop quiz. And maybe I've said this to you before. Um, in Ragazin's, they created them for Sam Houston Race Park when it first opened. And I was already a customer. And they called me and they mailed me a questionnaire that they needed filled out by Sam Houston and myself to be able to create the numbers for that track, the speed figures. So there were crazy questions like, what is the degree of bank on the turn? What's the run up of the chute to the starting gate for each distance that they run? A lot of things that were really sophisticated. I had to go to the track superintendent and get that information. But there's one question on there that I didn't understand. And when I completed the whole questionnaire out, I said, I'm not sending this back in until you tell me the answer to this question. The question was, what is the closest airport to Sam Houston Race Park? And I couldn't figure out why the heck they wanted to know what the closest airport was. So uh, so at the time, Len Friedman and Len Raggison were running the company. I said, I got everything filled out. I said, but I ain't sending it back until you tell me why you want to know where the closest airport is to Sam Houston. Now, keep in mind, the formula for creating these numbers is like the secret recipe of Kentucky Fried Chicken. They guarded it very closely. So, uh, but they told me why. I'm curious. Any guesses on why you think they want to know what the closest airport is to the track? So I think I've had this conversation before, and I don't think it was with you, but maybe it was. But I think I know what it is. And does it have something to do with that's the most... They want to know the most accurate wind. That's correct. So they, they, right. That's absolutely right. So airports have wind readings every hour, uh, direction and speed. And so Ragsons takes into account in their formula how if the wind gets above a certain amount and it's blowing a certain direction compared to like, you know, is it blowing against the horse making the lead down the backstretch? Is it blowing against the horse to make the lead down the stretch? You know, they give credit to the horse that are having to go into that wind versus the ones that are drafting behind the other horses. And they incorporate that in their number. Yeah, so I I do that that science I do um, I do agree with, and it's it's so uh, it's so difficult to track. I mean, obviously the the airport trick is the way to do it um, to be able to kind of have an idea of those directional winds because it makes sense. You know, if if this whole idea is new to you and you're listening, I mean, the idea that on the backside, if you're on the lead and you're going into a, a headwind. Uh, the horses that are in behind are drafting in behind you and your horse and, and rider are taking all of that, the brunt of that, of that, uh, of that headwind. And then, yeah. uh, you know, and then a tailwind too, you know, I, I guess, you know, a tailwind, if you're, if you're on the lead on the backside with a tailwind, that's going to allow a horse to, to go a further distance than normal. Look, there's, there's a reason why in cycling they ride in bunches, right. You know, and, and, and draft other riders. I mean, there's a reason in cycling that you have teams to just go a little further on that point, that you have teams and you have, you know, certain riders that are, are created to make the lead in that race early to set the pace. I mean, it's not that different in horse racing. You know, you're always looking at pace setups, at least I am, in a given race and, and how it's going to affect the race. Are there multiple horses that want to go to the lead versus you know, one singular horse that wants to go lead, that makes a big difference to me in how, you know, you're creating your, your, your wind selection. 
do you do you consider yourself a patient or impatient trainer when it comes to your relationship with riders? Uh, impatient. I'd have to say impatient because um, the amount of prep that the barn, including myself, puts into each race. Um, I, I don't know how to measure in hours, but but each race is very important to us, and um, I don't care what kind of race it is. And for a rider to make a critical error, one they didn't have to make in a race, um, that's a problem for me. And, um, you know, look, I've, I've, I'm 59 years old, getting ready to be 59 years old. Uh, I had an emergency surgery this past October that was a bit scary. I'm fine. Um, and, and I came out of that and I, I just said, I'm not going to be that guy anymore. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I may not like the ride, but I don't talk to the riders like I used to. Uh, you know, before it was, you know, Hey, I'm the boss and I'm paying you and, you know, you ride some, and then look, there, 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 there are some great instances of times where I really lost my shit, you know, uh, the Louisiana Derby with Mo Tom would probably rank up there at the top with Corey Lannery, uh, you know, just a really critical error that shouldn't have happened because he'd made the same mistake the race before. And, uh, I was so hot that not only did I scold him, but I scolded him in front of the entire crowd that was there, which is completely classless on my part. And then I walked right in the jocks room and in front of all the jockeys, I took him off the horse in the next race. It was a stake race. Uh, and, I, and I won that stake race without him. Now, you may have thought I got the last laugh, but unbeknownst to me, the rule in Louisiana is if you change riders after you've named a rider, you got to pay them both for the win. So I ended up having to pay two winner shares to two different riders and only one ran the race. So karma got even with me. But uh, like I said, um, it was not a Tommy Amos moment that day. And uh, probably has a lot to do with how much I wanted to win that race. But uh, I've always regretted that, even now. I think a lot of horse players are the same way, you know. I mean, you know, I think that it's the, it's the, it's the same explanation that you gave is that, um, you know, some of us, it's not even our career, right? This is just a, a, a hobby. And the time that we put into um, evaluating a race and understanding that a race doesn't have any pace in it or understanding that uh, there is a ton of speed in the race or whatever it might be. I think that horse players become frustrated when, um, when they feel as if the rider whose career it is as a professional didn't do, uh, didn't do the same homework. And I've just made the decision that a couple things, one, my life's not at risk. So that's the first thing I've tried to tell myself is my life, my life's not at risk. And two, it's easier for me to make that decision from here when I don't see all the angles and know exactly what's happening or going on. And the other thing that I've realized is that I started to notice that my, my criticism went, went like was contradicting itself. So I would criticize a guy for getting in a speed duel. You idiot. I can't believe you did that. Did you not know that other speed was in there? The race falls apart. He gets beat. Then I found myself criticizing guys that would go too slow on the front end and not open up and take advantage of that speed that, that they have. And I would, it, you can't. So I got to the point where I realized, like, John, you can't, <laughs> you can't get mad at both things. You got to pick one. So now I just get mad at unaggressive rides and all aggressive rides. I, I compliment. So that's the, that's my therapy. That's how I handle it. Yeah. Look, I think something that you're bringing up right now, which is uh, we call it the clock in the head of the rider is the hardest thing in the world for a rider to possess. Um, the really, really good ones, the Hall of Famers. I mean, some Hall of Famers don't have it, by the way. 
Uh, but the really, really good ones that have that clock in their head that seem to always have their horse in the right position. Maybe they don't win, but they've always put their horse in the right position to win are, are the guys that are, you know, the best at what they do. So we, we saw it this weekend uh, with uh, Johnny Velasquez on a, on a Pletcher horse where the pace was a crawl going around a ground. It was your best bet. Um, it was your best bet. on Yeah. The fearless. 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 Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The pace was a crawl. And uh, he recognized it the moment they turned down the backside. He knew he was in trouble. He was, I think, sitting in last. So at that point, he was willing to give up ground to start making up ground because he knew if he didn't get himself in position, he had no chance. And, uh, you know, he ended up being a little wide around the turn. And, I mean, but still, he got the job done. And um, if you sit back there and say, I'm going to wait for the trip inside and try to save all the ground and everything, he was doomed. But, uh, but very quickly, he knew in his head that this race is way too slow for my horse to win from way back here unless I start going right now. And, and so he did. I don't know if it was Richie or Gary that said on the show that they thought like that, that, you know, the guys of the past used to, they used to work a lot more horses and they feel like that, that the, these guys are a lot more, a lot more gallop boys and gallop girls that are an exercise riders. And that these guys nowadays, not that they're not, they weren't complaining. They were just saying that it's just a, it's just a, it's, it's a negative because they're not working as much in the mornings and because they're not working as much, you know, that, that, that clock, kind of gets a little bit rusty. Do you agree with that? Or, or do you think that's the, the, you know, do you think that's the case? I think that, that uh, being a jockey is an art form and to be really good at your art, you have to have that clock in your head. But I also think that in today's world, there are plenty of ways to make a living just by being a rider that's aggressive out of the gate and being a front end guy and getting caught oftentimes not knowing exactly what's going on. So I think it's an art form that is becoming lost to a certain extent. And every once in a while, we get a couple of people that come along that show us that, you know, it's not lost in the younger generation. The Ortiz uh, brothers, Jose and Irad Ortiz, I think are brilliant riders. I, I think they're going to, I think they're going to reset all the records uh, that we've seen in the past. I think they're the next generation of not good riders, but great riders. And, uh, they're, they're no-nonsense guys, right? I mean, their life, if you're around them at all, I'm, I don't spend any time off the racetrack with them, but certainly everybody knows how they are. You know, we're at Saratoga. I mean, it's not unusual for me to see you out having a drink or me having a drink with you. You know, you never see them. You know, you might see some other guys. You might see some other riders, but those guys, they go home. They're all about the next day of riding. So they do their homework. They're old school, and uh, that art form is not lost on them. No, you're right, and obviously uh, um, Jose is is has uh, had his hand in in your uh, one of the biggest wins of your career. And, I, and look, we we had this. We were we were in Saratoga, and we were uh, went to dinner. I think with with Tony and 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 uh, Michael Mul Mulvihill from Fox and the rest of the of the staff towards the end of the meet. And we were uh, I think at the Wishing Well, and we were on opposite ends of the table which I felt protected because you were so far away. And I finally, I finally confessed to you this, this, uh, this story that I had, I'd been needing to say because I felt so weird, like not saying it. I had to, so I, I yelled it across the table, um, really quickly. So I want to, I want to explain the Serengeti Empress bet that I made. I want to explain it because everyone, I would talk about it on the show all the time. And so people, 
people are this is the part that people are dying to to hear me have to try to get this out. So you tell so, your story and then I'm telling mine. Go ahead. Okay, great, great. So Serengeti, okay, look, you understand how it is. We're always looking for an opportunity to try to make some money. Um, when Serengeti Empress was a two-year-old and she had those two blowout wins at Ellis Park and in the Pocahontas, I told myself, and and and, and in fact, in the Pocahontas, um, I thought that the speed that the track was inside speed that day, and so I not that I didn't think she was good, but I thought that she was going to be over bet in the juvenile, and I thought there was an opportunity. What I was going to do was I was going to go all in with newspaper of record into the three horses that I liked in that race. And I was going to fade Serengeti Empress to try to make some money. And obviously that worked out, but you know, she got a really weird trip down inside and that anyways, and then Jaywalk freaked and has never won a race since. Then she came back as a, as a, as a three-year-old and I, she was, I was good with her. I was fine with her. So she has that great win in the Rachel Alexandra. And then you mentioned earlier, she, she bled in, in the, uh, in the fairgrounds Oaks. And I, look, I don't know a lot about how that happens. If one bleeds once, bleed twice, bleed again, bleed never again, never going to happen, going to happen, whatever. So that day it's, it's uh, you know, the first Friday in May in 2019, I'm heading to um, uh, Churchill Downs. I was in Lexington. I was heading there with Craig Burnick and some of his friends. And uh, we're like in a sprinter van and we're doing what you do when you're on your way to the Oaks and you're not working. We're getting after it. We're drinking, we're carrying on. And I didn't use Serengeti Empress in the Kentucky Oaks. I just thought the draw was going to be tough for her. I saw other speed in the race. I thought in order for her to clear, she's going to have to run too fast, whatever. So she wins and Craig Burnick, he liked her. I, I don't know if he singled her, but he like used her like aggressively in his pick. So he, he wins on the day, you know, I had bet $16,000 in, in another contest on, on newspaper of record. So I wasn't, she got beat by concrete rose. I was in an annoyed mood. We were all probably 10 or 12 drinks in. And I told Bernick, I said, man, I just think she got lucky today. She's never going to win another grade one. And he was like, yeah, no, yes, she is. I was like, no, she's never going to win another grade one. <laughs> and, and Bernick throws out a number that he wants to wager. And in hindsight, it gives me sweats every time I think about it. And I say, uh, all right, fine, let's bet. She'll never win another grade one in her life. And so now I didn't, I didn't, hadn't even really like known you personally yet. And so now I'm in this unbelievable position where I have to root against your favorite horse every time she runs in a grade one. Now look, when she's in a grade three, I root my, I root my butt off. I'm screaming and yelling and carrying on. I'm so happy for her. But every time she's in a grade one, I'm holding my breath and I feel awful about it. It's the worst position to be in. So I got to know. So she runs in the test. She barely gets beat by Kofefi. What, what was your What was your reaction as they came down the stretch? Oh, I could have lost. She, should, if you know, I told you this. If the post positions were flipped, she she should have won. She yeah. would have won. And she ran well in the Acorn. You know, she ran into Guarana. She freaked that day. Um, you know, and then obviously she ran well in the distaff. I was a little bit. I wasn't too nervous in the distaff. I felt like I had some protection there. I felt like there was some good fillies in there that no doubt if, if they. Put up, I, I could be okay. Um, and then, um, and then here's the, here's the funniest part about it though is like, uh, in like right around Christmas, Bernick texted me and he said, you know, send me your bank information. I was like, for what? He's like, I'm gonna send you that money. And I was like, I was like, man, I Bernick, it wasn't it wasn't just this year. It was lifetime. 
And he's like, that's what I thought. I just didn't want to be a jerk. And I was like, damn, I should have just taken the money. <laughs> and, uh, um, well, and so, drinking, so. <laughs> I know, I know. So I look every, I just, uh, luckily I like you. So if I get beat, that'll be my only like little piece of, of solace while I have to write the check. So uh, <laughs> I, I am extremely nervous. I tried to get out of the bet. Actually, I asked Bernick if he would, if he wanted to get out, but he wanted me to pay him at that point. And so I just got to ride it out now. <laughs> That's good enough for me. All right. So we were talking about the Kentucky Oaks and uh, I can't tell you how many wonderful things occurred from the Kentucky Oaks. Uh, I mean, I always tell Joel Politi, her owner, I said, she is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, um, you know, I wondered if there would ever be really a signature race for Tom Amos, something as big as the Kentucky Derby or the Kentucky Oaks. And, uh, you know, I went through a lot of years. My parents were getting older. I wanted them to be a part of it. And um, when she won this year, you know, my mom and dad were watching on TV uh, back home. They were in their 90s, of course, and uh, and they loved it. I mean, they were always supportive of me making this career choice, Which, and uh, to be able to thank them was, uh, especially on national TV, was the best. And, uh, you know, God works in mysterious ways because my mom passed away uh, this past September, the September after the Kentucky Oaks win. And my dad passed away about a month and a half ago. So it was the last years of their life that I got to get that win, which was really important to me. But um, so I said she gave me a lot. My favorite story from the Kentucky Oaks is uh, a phone call I got before the Oaks from the owner, uh, Joel Politi. So Joel told me that between um, the Fairgrounds Oaks and the Derby, uh, excuse me, and the Oaks, which uh, about two weeks before the Oaks, he uh, had gone on vacation in Costa Rica with his family, and uh, they were. It was a really nice concierge type vacation. Joel is an outdoorsman, as is his wife, and uh, they were either hiking or biking on a daily basis. They come back to the hotel, and they would have these chef cooked meals. And there are about three or four other couples with them. So one day they're out biking, and Joel's biking with one of the guys that's on the trip, doesn't know him. And as they're biking, they're comparing books they've read. And this guy says, "Well, this one book I read." He said, I liked it so much, I bought the movie rights to it. So Joel's like, who am I biking with? So he goes back to the hotel and does some investigating. It's Mark Bezos, Jeff Bezos' brother, as in Jeff Bezos of Amazon, the soon-to-be first trillionaire ever in the world. And uh, the next day when he's out with Mark, they get to talking again, and Joel, my owner of Serengeti Empress, tells him, my passion is horse racing. I'm running a horse in the Kentucky Oaks this year. And Mark Bezos says, my brother and I don't know anything about horse racing, but it's been on our bucket list, and we're coming to the Derby this year at Churchill Downs. And Joel says, well, you got to come see me. So Mark and Jeff Bezos are in town for the Derby, and they're very quiet about it. What they do on Oaks Day as well as Derby Day, if you're a participant in the race, they give you a suite. The suite is very, very nice, but it's outdoor, undercover, and the suites line up across next to each other so if it's the derby one through 20 suites all outdoors you can see from your suite all the way down the row of the other suites so on this particular day for the oaks there's 14 running so you've got 14 suites outside all alongside of each other and the biggest name in there is bill belichick bill belichick likes the races and everybody's getting his autograph well about the third race of the day here comes jeff bezos so he's in a Panama hat, sunglasses. He's got a couple bodyguards with him, but they look like ordinary guys, dressed in coat and tie. And he makes it to the suite area to Joel Politi's suite. It takes about 10 minutes 
for the sweet area to realize Jeff Bezos is in the house. Everybody wants his autograph. Everybody wants a picture with him. Meanwhile, uh, my owner, Joel, looks over, and there's Bill Belichick all by himself like he's somebody's stepchild. I mean, Bezos is getting all the attention. So I was busy in the back working with Serengeti, so I didn't get to go up there. But when I get to the paddock, they, they separate the races by a pretty good amount. So it's probably 45 minutes till the race runs, and we're already in the paddock. And I look up at the tow board, and Serengeti Empress is 27 to 1 for the race. And my oldest daughter, Ashley, says, uh, Dad, we're 27 to 1. And I said, well, I can tell you this, Ashley, if she runs a race, that's a big mistake. So by the time we leave the paddock and leg up the riders, I'm 17 to 1. Now, 10 points in betting on Derby weekend at, the, at Churchill Downs, that takes a lot of money to move 10 points. But when we get to the starting gate, we're down to 13 to 1. I remember looking over at the odds. And I said to myself, man, that Bezos guy, he got me. You know, so... <laughs> They run the race. I win. I don't think about Jeff Bezos again. I mean, you know, it couldn't have been better. I'm with my wife, Colleen, my kids. I have a close set of friends that come to the Derby every year. I mean, we're in the infield in the winter. It was just the most wonderful experience you could possibly imagine. We go to dinner that night. We, I haven't stayed out that late since college uh, that night. But anyhow, I drag myself into work the next morning, and it hits me about the Jeff Bezos thing. So I, I call my owner, and I'm like, hey, Joel, just want to let you know, Serengeti looks good today. By the way, did those guys bet on Serengeti Empress? You know how much they might have bet? And you go, oh, yeah, they sent me a picture. And I was like, come on, you got to send it to my phone. He goes, I'll send it to you right now. So I hang up the phone. I'm waiting for this picture to come over. It comes over, and it's Mark and Jeff Bezos, just just their hands. And they they got the money fanned out like a deck of cards. And I count it up, and it's, it's $100 to win. That's it for both of them. <laughs> And I'm so disappointed. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. So I call my owner back, and when I call, he's laughing. I'm like, are you telling me they only bet $100 each? He goes, not only did they only bet $100 each, Tom, when I spoke to him after the race, they were so fired up, you would have thought they had robbed a bank. So that's the beauty of handicapping and horse racing. It's not about how much you make. It's about being right. You know, walking out of the track and saying, that was me. I knew that horse was going to win. I mean, that's exactly how they took it. So I was like, okay, I get it now. But they they, they weren't the ones that moved the odds. I don't know who did, but it wasn't them. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yeah, no, I, I thought you were going to tell me they bet 100000 or that's something. It sounded exciting. Right, right. Yeah. It, it, you know, you just wonder. It's like, it's funny. It's like, this, I mean, does, does you know, does, does that money even move your soul anymore when you're when you're at that point? I mean, it's great that it still does. That's the that's the. I mean, it obviously says a lot about him as an individual, right? But it's it also about, it's, it's just, the money. just the excitement. It's about about picking the right horse, picking the one. Absolutely. Were you worried uh, about Serengeti Empress's issue with um, with the bleeding? Was oh, it just God. a one off thing, or was it something you were concerned was going to come up again? Well, I'll tell you another story I've never told publicly. So uh, when Serengeti Empress got up here, uh, the idea of whether we were going to run the Oaks or not was up in the air. You know, it was going to be a wait and see. So I got her on the track. I galloped her one morning, probably her second day over the track at Churchill, which would have been early April, and the race was a month away. And, uh, you know, I wanted to know how much of a problem the bleeding was going to be. So uh, I galloped her that morning, and coming off the racetrack, she coughed. And coughing is a, a sign of 
you know, that something might not be right respiratory wise. So, um, I got back to the bar and I called my vet and I said, Hey, we need to go Sarah and get the Empress. She coughed on the track. I'm worried that she might've bled. So he comes and he scopes her and he goes, Tom, she only, she bled a little bit, not a lot, but she did bleed. Well, that's just at a gallop. So, you know, what's she going to do in a work and what's she going to do in a race, which is much harder. And I was like, that's it. We can't, we can't run her. So I, uh, called my, I called uh, Joel and I said, Joel, we're not going to run. I said, she bled just galloping and we can't take that chance. He understood and said, no problem. So I had been posting a lot of things about her on uh, Twitter because I was getting a lot of pushback that it was, that she didn't bleed, that she'd hurt herself because she was vanned off after the race in New Orleans and people, uh, some people I should say, were, were taking it as a sign she wasn't healthy leg wise. So uh, the next morning I brought her out to train and I told my exercise rider, look, I want you to back up about 50 yards. Then I want you to gallop by me and you can just pull her up after that. And I just want to get her on film showing that she moved while galloping before I brought her back to the barn and then announced to the world that she was not running in the Oaks. Cause I thought if I didn't do that, it's just going to add fuel to the fire. So my gallop boy does exactly what I told him to. I film her and uh, put the, put the phone down and I'm watching. I've got three other horses on the track at the same time. They're all galloping. They come by. All of a sudden, here comes Sarah getting Empress coming by again. He misunderstood me. He galloped her another full mile, and she's on it. I mean, she's aggressively training. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I get her back to the barn, and I, I tell the groom and uh, my assistant, let me know when she coughs. And she doesn't cough at all. So 15 minutes go by after she's worked out, and I call my vet, and I said, listen, I'm going to ask you to do something crazy. Can you come scope Serengeti again? And he's like, yeah, what's up? And I told him what happened. He goes, oh, God. So he comes and scopes her, and he goes, I don't know what to tell you. There's absolutely no blood in her trachea. She's fine. I was like, God, that's so weird. So I said, you know, I'm going to keep training her. So I worked her, and uh, I had the vet look down her and scope her again. Then I worked her hard. I gave her a strong 5.8s, uh, two works before the race in company. It was a good-looking work. Not only did I scope her that day, but I had my – vet walk out with me and talk to the press about what we've seen. The whole time I'm doing this, the idea is I'm trying to be as transparent as I possibly can be so that if she does bleed in the race, um, I know I'm going to take a ton of criticism, but I, I, I don't want to take any more than I have to. So um, we're feeling pretty good about her at that point. And we're probably seven days before the race and two days before the draw, and I get a phone call, and I look down, it's a Churchill Downs number. They all start with 636. And they answer, and it's uh, the vice president of Churchill. And he goes, uh, Tom, um, I have to discuss something with you. We've got a letter from PETA saying that you running Serengeti Empress in the Oaks is a cruelty to animals. And I'm like, did they mention any other participants in the Derby weekend races? Just you. And I was like, oh, God. So... I said, look, all I can tell you is I've done anything in my power to make sure that she's not going to bleed. I said, I've put it all out on Twitter. They're welcome to look at it all. you know. But this is at a time where PETA was getting some real power in public opinion polls. So I went from that day till the day she ran in the Oaks, and I didn't sleep at all. Every night was a miserable night of sleep. I was just worried, what happens if something goes wrong? Am I risking my entire career for this one race? Is the pushback going to be so bad that, you know, I'm never going to be looked at in the same light by people? 
and and I was really really nervous about it. Um, you know, fortunately none of that happened, and I never heard from Peter again after that. So, uh, I, that's that was a that was a crazy time for me. But um, look, it's hard to be in a bad mood after you win a race like that. I was the happiest guy on planet Earth. Oh my God, that so is, you think it's just like an environmental thing? I mean, how does that what 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 causes that to happen? So, you know, Neil Howard had a very good horse that won the Preakness. I'm trying to remember who it is, and he did a little blowout with him midweek for the Preakness, and the media got a hold of it. In fact, he bled. Uh, I think he blew him out like Tuesday or Wednesday before the Preakness, and um, I got who was that horse? But anyhow, um, in any case. Uh, he wins the Preakness and doesn't bleed. So there's so much we don't understand about about horses that bleed. Um, we don't even know why, if, it, if it's a bursting of the small uh, blood vessels due to higher blood pressure that goes through when they're running at a high speed. We don't even really have a good understanding of why horses bleed. It's something we don't understand at all. What we do know is that Lasix not necessarily prevents it, but definitely brings down the probability of that happening. So that's why there's this big fight about Lasix. And, you know, I'm not going to get into that in this conversation. We need, we need another two hours. But suffice to say that Lasix is like, the Lasix debate is like the Republicans and the Democrats. You are not going to convince a Democrat to be a Republican, and you're not going to convince a Republican to be a Democrat or see their, their sides. And the Lasix issue is the same way. It's very polarizing. And, uh, and people have their opinions. So it's, it's a difficult conversation, but I think it's interesting that even our biggest experts are not going to be able to sit here and tell you exactly what makes a horse bleed, but environmental issues. Sure. That's gotta be part of it. Right. Yeah. I think so. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I thought maybe like, I thought maybe like even like humidity could be something that could right. be taken into consideration. Right. I agree. Um, Summer Squall was the horse. I Googled that. I didn't know that. That's right. That you were for Neil Howard. I'm going it. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't want it to. It would, it would have drove me nuts if it was me on the other end. So, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that, that uh, still talking about Serengeti Empress that like, you know, that worries me the most about, about my wager <laughs> is that, is that if she was in the hands of someone that didn't understand racing dynamics like you do, I would feel better about it. But the fact that you have made a decision with her that I think is the right decision, which is that you are going to find races where she can get herself on the front end and relax and run and she'll run. Not that she needs to go 24. You'll put her on the front end and she can go 22 and four if she just, but she needs to be on the front end. And I think that that really increases her chances of winning. And I, I just wish more trainers and owners would give their riders that free pass to make that aggressive decision because you know trying to rate her in behind horses you're taking away what it is she's actually good at uh, there's no question about that so i mean you're being polite she's a front-end horse and if you look at her career record which is very good you see that all of her wins are when she makes the front end so you know that's that's her game uh don't take anything away from her she's the best horse i've ever trained um but but that is her style, and that's how she wins races. And if it doesn't go that way, um, she's not going to run her best race. It didn't go that way in the Apple Blossom. I had great reservations about running in that race, but it was at a time where there was no other options because they were the only track going. 
And uh, I went into it and I really, really was concerned that the setup was not going to be to her liking. And I think I said on the show that we did together, look, if she's not on the lead when they come out of the turn, she's not going to win. Um, she didn't make the lead coming out of the turn and, and that was that. So um, that that's on me. I should have, I should have been more willing to say, Hey, you know what? There may not be any other race out there, but we're going to skip this one. So, uh, but unfortunately I didn't, you know, you, look, there's a lot of things that trainers think that you need to be more open-minded about. Um, you know, when it comes to their horses, uh, you can get caught up in the idea that it's my horse, like it's my kid, you know, and you sometimes don't see things in black and white, uh, Horse players, same way. You know, they're trainers. I'm sure you're like, I really don't want to bend this guy. He's not very good at what he does. But but you got to take that out of the equation. I mean, if the horse is good enough, you know, that's the major ingredient to whether a horse can win a race or not. So, you know, being being eyes wide open and looking at things 2020 are important in our industry from just about every aspect, trainer, jockey, handicapper. From a, you know, I've never, I guess, I think I, I mean, I guess I could guess what it is, but I've never, I think I've asked a, like a, a trainer this. What, what is the thing about her needing the lead? What is it? Is it that her attitude changes if she doesn't get the lead? Is it a, is it a mental thing, a physical thing where she, if she doesn't have the lead, then she wastes energy trying to get it? Or is she just mad and she's like almost pouting that she didn't get the lead? Like, what is the, why, what is it about, what does it mean that she needs the lead? Well, I think all horses have styles, you know, the style they like to race, uh, you know. So the Serengeti Empress, that's just her style. That's how she likes to do it. Uh, she's not as comfortable if she doesn't get to run her style of race. And so, I mean, if you want to convert that into people, so, um, Let's talk, let's talk about some runners, okay? So one of the most famous runners, and I'm going back in time, but Steve Prefontaine was a serious runner, okay? And he, he started the, along with the creator of the shoe that became Nike's you know, first shoe. He was a part of that. But Steve Prefontaine, he liked to run them off their feet right at the start. And his college coaches and his professional coaches kept telling him, look, look at the clock. You're going this opening portion of the race this fast. You'd be so much better if you could regulate, but it wasn't his game, you know? So look, it's not her game. She, that's her style. All horses have style. On the, on the other hand, so take a horse like Mo Tom that's a multiple graded stakes winner, ran the Kentucky Derby. When I was training him as a two-year-old, he couldn't outwork anything. You know, I was like, oh my God, this is a bad purchase. But the whole time you're working with two-year-olds in June, it's about races that are going five-eighths of a mile, and you're working against other horses their age, it's about, you know, hey, what's your speed? You know, can you can you use that speed going five eights? Well, he was never a five eights horse. As soon as I got away from that and started saying, look, let's change him up. Let's forget about these sprint races and let's let him do his thing by going early, late, and seeing if he'll finish for us in a workout. So in other words, restrain him a little bit early and then see if we can pick it up that last eighth of a mile. And the moment I did that, he was brilliant. I was like, oh. You know, how long does he have to tell me something before I listen? You know, which is, that's the secret to being a good trainer. You know, I mean, I, I one of the most uh, uh, non-educational statements in horse racing that you can make is, boy, if only they could talk. That one drives me crazy. Because 
they do. They talk to you in so many different ways. And the guys that are really good at training, they're fluent in the language. You know, they're fluent in what the horse is saying to them at all times. And uh, so, you know, when the horse is talking to you, you got to listen. And uh, in the case of Mo Tom, it took me a while to listen. But, uh, but we found out what he liked to do. So style is, is, is just it. It's style. People have it. Horses have it. It feels like to me like there's, a, there's an aspect of creativity when it comes to training where, you know, it's just like anything else in the world or whatever business that you're in that you, you have a problem or you have an objective and you have to figure out how you're going to get there. And it's not always a straight line. And a lot of times you have to figure out, well, how about if we try this and do this and do that? Or, well, what if we, you know, and I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's just like changing up something little that, that can help you get to that end result. And, um, and I feel like that's probably what happens a lot of times with those trainers that, that you're talking about where I, I, uh, I see their name and I'm like, oh, I can't bet this horse if this guy's training this horse. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's more because of, it feels like to me, like the lack of creativity to find out how to make this good horse great or make this okay horse good. And, and I think that that's, you know, you see it in football a lot too with coaches, finding ways to, right, right. to get, get their best out of somebody. Right. So I was, that was me, my comparison. So I, I, I said on the air the other day, I was like, I was talking about uh, the race that was coming up. Um, um, it was the race, the sprint race for the Phillies and mares. And I, 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 I hypothetically said, look, if these two big favorites, which are the only ones we're talking about in this race was break even. And then Asmussen's horse, uh, the really good Philly. Um, yeah. Me and mischief. Me and mischief. I said, if these two horses get caught up with each other too much, the jockeys are riding against each other too much. It could set up for a close in here. We've got three legitimate closers in here that could pick up the pieces at big price. You know, so what I was trying to say was it's not a game of perfect, you know, you're never going to do anything perfectly. There's just too many variables in everything you're doing, training and getting to a race to make it a, a situation where you just do everything right. Now, look, you need to do everything right that's within your power. So, uh, you know, mental attitude of the horse in the paddock and going to the starting gate, you know, that's something that I can control to a great, great extent with my horses. Uh, leaving the gate correctly is something that usually comes through practice. And oftentimes they forget the first time they run, no matter how well you practice with them. But, but typically most trainers are at least proficient enough to have their horses leave good from the gate. Um, uh, you know, once they start their career, but you know, there's, there's things you can control and things you can't control, I guess what I'm saying. And when you can't control something, particularly when you watch a horse in a race, now remember, you know, in practice with one other horse at a high speed versus a field of 10 in the starting gate, we can't simulate a race in practice. So you're learning from those races. So, I mean, a trainer that's not studying his horse and learning what to work on based on how he's run in that race, whether it be he gets nervous in the gate when he thought he was going to be fine, whether it be that he doesn't seem to like to be crowded with other horses, I mean, anything the horse might show you. And that's where the jockey comes in too. You want his input on this. So I remember hearing when I was an assistant trainer from a really good trainer, how there are some jockeys that are very good in the saddle, but not very good out of the saddle. And there are other jockeys that are very good in the saddle and also very good out of the saddle. What he's saying is that rider is not only good riding a horse, but he can tell me things about that horse when he's off that horse. And that is a big advantage for me 
in trying to work with that horse for future races. Tom, I wanted to to kind of to to wrap it up with with talking a little bit about um, about you know our uh, how we even you know got to become friends with the TV stuff. How, how did you? How did you? What was your first kind of foray into TV? How did you end up um, in you know starting into TV? Because obviously you you're in the the Midwest or in the South and in, in, in Louisiana or, or in uh, in Louisville, and obviously your your first kind of I think your first gigs were like TVG. How, how did that all come about? with you uh, getting on TV? So TVG had created a new show called The Works for the Kentucky Derby. It was a good show. You know, they would show the workouts of all the horses for about nine days before the Kentucky Derby, and you'd watch them, and we'd analyze those works. They needed somebody to analyze those works that was could give a trainer's perspective on what was happening during the workout. And, uh, and, um, and they decided to use me. So, uh, look... I was awful on TV when I first started. I mean, I had the thoughts in my head, but I also had some nerves. So, you know, when you're nervous, your mind's not thinking clearly and and you're not putting out what you need to be putting out to the public. And then the other problem I had was I was a little too frank on occasion and said things that could have been said in a much more delicate fashion and still said the same thing. And I didn't do that well either. So uh, I didn't make a lot of friends amongst some of the bigger trainers. Uh, Lucas didn't talk to me for almost two years over something I said, which really hurt because he, he and I are good friends and we're good friends again. I just made a mistake. I shouldn't have said it the way I said it. But, uh, but, and then Bob Baffert at one point pulled me aside and said, Hey man, you got to watch the way you say it because you say something on TV and the next thing you know, my owner's calling me. I'm like, I don't know. What, what is he talking about? So uh, there was a big learning curve for me, maybe bigger than usual for some of the people that, I consider to be naturals on TV like yourself. You're very good on TV. I'm not just giving you that blow smoke love affair thing. You're very good on TV. You're extremely relaxed. Uh, you're clever and you're good at it. Um, I think you talk to the audience well. So it took me a long time to get to that point. I think I'm good at it now. Uh, that's my opinion at least, but it took me a long time to get there. No, I think you're, I think you're phenomenal. I, I, I love, uh, I love when I see that that we're on at the same time. It's 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 comforting. I think most people might not know know this. It's comforting when when you're working with someone that you feel comfortable with. It, it just it's it's so much. It, it takes your anxiety levels down because you know that they're not going to, uh, you know they're not going to like you know they're not going to leave you hanging if you if you're if you're at a loss you can kind of set them up and they'll take the ball. It's just it's a it's a very comforting thing and. You know, I, I appreciate you saying that because the truth is, man, I, I still get kind of, I don't, I mean, I used to get really nervous. I, I still get a little bit nervous. Um, it's just because it's the idea that it's, it's live, you know, and really my biggest fear is, is, and, and thank God I, I had eight years of training with my son and my biggest fear is that I'm going to say the F word. Yeah. Like I'm because in, in my normal setting, I'm that's that's how I talk, you know, that's how I talk. And yeah. luckily, I trained myself a little bit to kind of retrain myself with my son. If it wasn't for that, I'd be man, I'd be <laughs> I, I would have let one slip by now, guaranteed. Let me tell you, that might help the ratings, you know. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, oh, I, I'm not I'm sure would love that. I've made on, on live TV, but I've made them, trust me. So, uh, you know, I'd. I'd <laughs> We had we had a race this weekend. We were going to discuss the stake, and break even was in on Friday as well. And I I didn't want to do the shows this week. I I did them because we had some people out with the COVID, and I had a ton of work to do. 
And uh, I said no, and then I finally decided to do it. Well, I only had limited time to prepare. And we get to talking about the steak with the Phillies and Mares sprinting on Friday. And uh, I knew break even was in later that day. She ended up scratching to run the steak the next day. And my days run together like you wouldn't believe when I'm training on the track. And I talked about the race like it was happening later that day and referred to how much rain we were getting on the track. I mean, it was so awful. They finally just cut me off and went back to the studio. <laughs> I was like, I cannot believe I just did that. So uh, I wouldn't make that mistake ordinarily, but I, I had minimal time to prep. Uh, for this. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's hard, you know, and especially in those situations where, you, you know, you didn't think you were going to be on. But um, it's fun, though. I enjoy it, man. I really, I really do. I, I, love, I love being able to, uh, to promote this game that I know we both love so much. And it's, uh, I'm really proud of the shows, man. Like I, I said be. before, like, uh, the people that we have are, 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 are just amazing. Even behind the scenes, you know, just the, the directors, the, the producers with Terrence and Evan and, yeah. and, uh, and Bobby and Eric and, uh, and yeah. Josh, they just do such a great job, you know, and yeah, Eric, Eric too helping. It's just, you know, I, I feel good about what we're doing, you know? So I, I yeah. It would be annoying if I didn't love, if I didn't like the show, you know, I'd hate to like be, you know, just be on it and then be like, oh, this is stupid. What are we I doing? want to say something about that too. So look, the show's on a lot when I'm not on it. Cause I don't do it all the time. Uh, and I get to watch it and it's, it's, it's a quality horse racing show. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, and I've done a lot of them. So I- I'm proud of it as well. I think people probably don't realize how much work goes into it behind the scenes. Now, we're going to do a show from the first race to the last race that's five hours long, and it's literally scripted in outline form, minute by minute, by the crew before we do it. So we have an outline that we follow into that show for five-plus hours every day that's put together by a team that's got the cameras, the videos we're going to shoot, and everything that goes with it. And then you got the two guys that got the hardest job in the world, and Greg Wolf and Lafitte Pink High, who are hosting the show. And literally have got to have 10 things on their mind at all times because there's 10 things they have to do at all times. And uh, so our job is relatively easy compared to theirs. But the behind the scenes team at the New York Racing Association that puts the show together, man, I'd go anywhere with them. They're good. Right. And the thing is, is I've only, you know, this is my, this is the only TV I've done. And, but from what I've heard from everyone else is they do it with, with a lot less than, than other people do in terms of the bodies, right. The bodies and the crew, um, that are, you know, they're doing it with a third of, of some other productions. And, and that's, that, that's amazing to me to, to see that. But yeah, you say down to the minute, it's, it's sometimes just down to 30 seconds on those yeah, rundowns of, of things that are, are, are going on. So it's uh, it's fun to be a part of it. Well, well, look, I, I look. You got to get up earlier than I do tomorrow, so I, I I'm gonna. I feel bad keeping you on. I appreciate you taking the time. I don't want to keep you too long because uh, you'll probably you'll be almost done with your day. When no, I'll get up earlier than that. I got Austin wakes up at seven wanting to play video games, so it, it happens pretty quick. <laughs> Listen, I want to tell you I, that was a pleasure. We were on for two hours. It felt like ten minutes. I feel like I'm just talking to a buddy. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think we got to learn a little bit more about each other. So uh, when we get together, we'll we'll do like we do in the past. We'll have a beer. Absolutely, it'll be fun. I will see. You. Are you on this weekend? No, no. I got I got too much work to do, but I'll be watching you guys and enjoying it. All right. Well, good luck. We'll see you uh, sooner than later. All right, Jonathan. Take care. Well, I mean, good luck in your grade threes and grade twos. <laughs>
I tell you what, this is such an awkward thing. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I've gotten off my chest twice now, so I don't have to feel guilty about it anymore. But uh, look, I, Tom and I weren't really like, I mean, I knew him. And we weren't really friends at that point when, when I made the wager. And I also wasn't a f- sound mind and body at that moment of, uh, of the Kentucky Oaks Eve on Friday after the newspaper of record beat and the, uh, I don't know what it is about the Kentucky Oaks. And I don't know why I don't drink uh, these types of drinks any other time, but I, those lilies, I, I swear I drink about 20 of them on Friday, uh, Kentucky Oaks, obviously not this Friday, but, and, and not, uh, not in September, I'll be at Saratoga, but nonetheless, um, it, it's, uh, it's always a fun Friday, and, and uh, so I, I can't be held responsible for the decisions I made on Friday evenings of Kentucky Oak. So, look, uh, I, I feel I feel like we're very fortunate to get uh, get some fun stories that uh, haven't been told before. You know, um, I, I think the Serengeti Emperor story was 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 crazy. You know, it's 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 uh, the inches we need are everywhere around us, and uh, that's uh, I think Al Pacino said that in any giving sun any, any giving Sunday one of my favorite movies and that speech is just is remarkable and uh it's true i mean you know if the if the exercise boy or the gallop boy didn't make the mistake uh, and send her back around there you know that that might not have ever happened and, and given tom and and his family you know one of the greatest if not the greatest win of his career so uh it's a beautiful game man it 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 really does it's uh it's inches you know you think back of of all the pick fours and fives and sixes that you either won or lost by an inch and uh, I think that's what makes the wins so special, right? Is like, is you know how fleeting they can be and, and, and how fast they can go away from you. Whether you're an owner, you're a trainer, you're a jockey, you're a better. It's, uh, it truly is a game of inches and, and opportunity. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, I'm sure Tom and his family are very thankful that Serengeti Empress was, uh, had they had the opportunity for her to run. And, uh, man, I had no idea that, uh, that Tom scored out like that back in 2004 he said he still he said it sounds like he still got something of it left so my plan at this point is as soon as serengeti empress wins her next grade one i'm going to hit him up immediately after the race while he's still in a very good mood and i'm just going to ask him if i can borrow that money um so that i can pay uh so i can pay burning so you know we'll, we'll see it seems like i'm in a position now where it's a win-win uh if she wins another grade one my my dear friend wins a grade one and uh i, I now know that he's probably got the the scratch to let your boy borrow it to uh, to pay the debt. So this is a, this is a beautiful podcast. Um, look, I want to thank everybody for uh, for hanging out with us. Uh, I want to thank our our guests for for hanging out with us too. This is not a fifteen minute thirty minute commitment like most interviews. So I appreciate people taking the time and and uh, and I appreciate you guys and, and gals for listening as well. Um, we're gonna keep rolling, man. It's been going good. We haven't uh, we haven't had any lulls yet. We haven't had that that missed week yet. I'm, I'm sure it's coming at some point, but as of right now, we're still rolling. So we'll keep rolling. Um, I want to thank Drew Coatney, our, our business manager. If you have any questions, holler at Drew. I want to thank PTF for whatever it is he does. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, Naomi, uh, talk racing to me with Naomi. Uh, very proud of that show and what she's accomplished. Spencer, my man, he's back. Uh, he, he sucked me into some contests that I'm getting my doors blown off in. So appreciate that Spencer. And then Matty ice, uh, TV's Matt Bernier, Matt Bernier show is, uh, is rolling as well. And we're working on some other stuff. We're always working on some stuff, some other ideas. So, uh, look, I, 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 I can promise you one thing that I'll never 
get uh, weird and uh, political on you here. That's not what you come here for. But I do think it's important just to say, you know, like, um, just, man, you know, l- love love your neighbor, right? Just, and, and I think it's that simple. Uh, love your neighbor and uh, and uh, try to show a little respect. I think if 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 everyone kind of just lives by that, we'll all be uh, be a little bit happier tomorrow when we wake up. So uh, stay safe. Check you guys out next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what in the where? I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, man.